You're basically John the Baptist for the league. Well, it needs one. It needs a messiah to come after you. You end up beheaded, but, you know, yeah. for, for the good of the game. Well, you'd be willing to lay down your life, right? OTB AM. Live weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. OTB AM. With Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. And you're welcome along. It is Wednesday morning, I believe. Is that correct? It is. Yes, it's Wednesday morning of the uh, post all Ireland week. Owen, how are the celebrations going in your head? Good. Uh, like, I mean, they were over on Sunday at about nine o'clock. So I mean, you'd rather be anywhere but here right now. Get get home in time for the Sunday game. On to the next one. What's your FOMO like? Yesterday with the FOMO was real. Uh, home. Lie, yeah, the um, the Kerry Mafia were out in the Glen Eagle Hotel with Sam Maguire. And um, and you weren't. I was not. No, I was. It's interesting. Uh, Colin Bewick is also with us this morning. It's interesting. You've like literally just blown the cover of the Kerry Mafia, who you denied the very existence of. There is no mafia. <laughs> it's like, there, straight there, away, it's all right no now. Mafia. We can sorry. tell everybody. What, yeah. did I, what did I say? The Kerry Mafia were out in the Glen Eagle uh, Hotel. Sorry, sorry. I, I meant a few of my esteemed colleagues. There is no mafia. <laughs> Okay, go on. Um, a, a few people that I'm in a WhatsApp group with uh, were posting photos of them in a in a pub in Clarny having lunch with Sam McGuire sitting on the table beside them. Uh, they were looking they seem to have unfettered access of it yeah. in the post-match celebrations, which would suggest like they're well got. They they got a couple of hours looking after it yesterday, uh, to put it that way, before it moved on to Tralee. And then uh, another member of that uh, WhatsApp group was uh, also in Tralee uh, with, uh, with the players and all that. So phone was kind of real, but at the same time, I think... Um, after Sunday I think I kind of had a, enough of it even Monday I was I was like I actually just don't have the energy for this <laughs> just okay. driving all the way down there one of the reasons Owen doesn't have the energy for this anymore Colm is because he's old we, we, we missed that you're no longer a member of the 27 club I survived I survived thankfully we've got and a bit of Stevie Wonder did we We're, it's happy birthday essentially happy birthday thanks very much we actually have a photograph of Owen's birthday last week when he looking was in studio there. looking That's very happy. Look how young I look compared <laughs> to now. Looking very unhappy. Oh, I wish I, I wish I could go back to, to that moment. Of hope. Yeah, we we pulled a bit of a, a yaya Torre on this. We we missed your birthday. We apologise for that. I kind kind of forgot about it as well. To be honest, it was middle of the week. There were bigger things happening that weekend, and uh, I kind of came and went. But I I guess. Yeah, I guess I can kind of say now, you know, Kirk Cobain achieved more in his entire life than I did. And uh, I can Jim crack Harrison, jokes like that. Jimi Hendrix. Amy Winehouse. Amy Winehouse. Yeah, so I survived. It's great. We missed your birthday as well, Ger. I mean, just about. It's like a, a week-long thing. My birthday was like months ago. Yeah, but we, remember we did the same thing and inspired us to do the same again. We actually knew it was Owen's birthday last Tuesday, but we said we'd leave it for a week. It's yeah, like I appreciate maximum that. Maximum impact. And yeah. God, you got me. And I had so many angles to work with with your uh, facial expressions last Tuesday. Mm-hmm. I, I knew there was something up that we must have forgotten something. Yeah, you were a bit off. You are a bit off with all of us, in fairness. And we apologise for that. Uh, but I think the main reason for that is that it was a Tuesday. Like, that your birthday was on a Tuesday. <laughs> the, worst, the worst day of the week. Like, After a heavy weekend, you mean? No, just the worst day of the week every week. If anybody okay. disagrees with that. It is. They I actually had this debate on. with someone. So I was like, oh, Monday's the worst day. No. Monday's not. Because you have no expectations of a Monday. Correct. So, like, Monday, you just get through the Monday, right? And also, Monday's never that bad. But Tuesday is no man's land. Tuesday's the second You're, Monday. You were stranded on a Tuesday. It's like February. It's, like, it's just always the worst. The, the second bit of it is always the worst. Yeah, I'm still not, and I'm still not convinced of my pronunciation of February too, so. Yeah. 
This, is, this is a really good conversation. OTBA, There's nothing to talk about this. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Nothing effortless about the uh, first three and a half minutes of the show this morning. Uh, you do look much older this week than last week, though, and I, suggest, I suspect that's because older. of the amount of time that you've been uh, spent drinking over the week. Um, people were texting us in, our regular Spurs fan, was uh, a resident Spurs fan, rather, was texting us in going, could I... Could I um, uh, what, what, what do you what, judge whether or not you were hungover? I mean, I don't think anybody needed to. It was like I, w- I wasn't though, really. I was just absolutely shattered. I was frazzled. That, that's what hangovers are like when you when you get to your late twenties now. On yeah, I just like a, yeah. you can no longer take it. Yeah, it's I just w- the sleep. I hon- that's it. I honestly wasn't. I was I was sleep deprived and and frazzled and my sentences weren't making much sense because my brain wasn't functioning very well yesterday. So I apologise to uh, resident Spurs fan. Why is this everybody. your favourite All Ireland? Um, I mean, did I say? Did I say it was? No, oh, but you, you're behaving like it was. <clears throat> you didn't. You didn't really know me in 2014, though. The 2014 was kind of like a ball from the blue, and uh, really, the, the the reason why this one is a great one is because of relief and just the the not not that the push <coughs> was off off the shoulders or anything, but it was it was a grim couple of defeats, wasn't it? Those last two years, Cork watching that at home, not being able to be there, and then obviously Tyrone was just. Just horrific, absolutely horrific the way that afternoon uh, developed, and even like when you go back to 2019, the the opportunities that they had to, to win that drawn game. That that's what it is. That's why this one is, is special. And then obviously the the manner of the semi final win. So those those are the two main reasons: the the defeats and also the the drama of the semi final. That, Col- that's what makes it special. Colm, do you think um, after a, a moment of like such a special relief that mm. the outpouring would be joy and you know? Yeah, I'm surprised. It, um, do you considered. think? What are you scrolling? Like Jerry takes out his phone, he starts scrolling here. What is he scrolling to now? Do you, do you think that like? <laughs> oh, what, what is this going to be now? What are you, what are you scrolling towards? What, like I can see it like going up towards like <laughs> at 3:54 a.m. the morning after. Do you think you'd be sending out like a montage, a, a bit of video from the montage <laughs> of the opening from the day itself? Where it's the kings of the noughties and and the message and the message seems like team of the decade has been decided. Do you, do you think four o'clock in the morning after you've had the biggest moment of relief in your entire life would be to settle old scores? Like you have to pause the video, you have to get the, the camera up, you have to hit record and scroll in a bit, and then you have to type out with two hands. Seems like team of the decade has been decided. Sent. Right, I was in. Uh, uh, <laughs> basically, that's basically exactly how it happened as well. Uh, I think. I think I got to like. The, I think Joanne had just started presenting, and then I was like, I, I, I was, I was going to watch the entire coverage basically on Sunday night. I was like, I can't do this. I just got to go to bed. But the highlights came out of the boar's head and I saw the montage without the audio obviously and I was like does that say kings of the naughties <laughs> so I like put that into the back of my brain and I was like when I get home tonight I'm taking a video of that montage and I'm sending it to Jer because I think yeah. it's ultimate proof that finally the debate has been settled uh, in the 2000s t- Tommy Tommy in the live comments wants to know on a scale of one to Yera what would you rate Owen's display of playing down Kerry's easy <laughs> All-Ireland campaign yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I think this is not a handy All-Ireland I think they won it easily in the end but it wasn't a handy all Ireland because they beat the dubs along I, the way I also think everybody else has kind of like downplayed it nicely as well you know like um, I think the general consensus out there is that they didn't play very well I think uh, a lot of people seem to think that if Conor Callan was playing a semi-final that they wouldn't have even been in the final Good grist for the mill over the winter Yeah I, I think that I don't think anybody's really kind of like blowing this up to anything um, more special than it, than it really is like I, I think many people outside of Kerry have been have knocked this already and that's just the nature of winning in All-Ireland I think they're all wrong though I do think that like 
Um, there's no guarantee that Conor Callan's form was going to be the form that he displayed in Leinster. It could have been the form that he displayed in last year's All Ireland semi final when he was grand but not great. Like, uh, you know, it's, he's probably worth a point. Yeah. Uh, I, I, will, I will absolutely accept that. Well, yeah, but maybe Kerry played differently. And, and <laughs> yeah, in the second half, they start the second half better. Maybe the penalty goes in, doesn't really matter. And they end up getting beaten by six points and he scores four. He did score, he, he did score one point in the John game in 19. Like, Kerry have shown in the past they can keep him to one point now in the replay he was much better but like that's one thing that's been thrown at them like I, to be honest with you I do I kind of if we were doing predictions I do kind of fancy Dublin next year as well so maybe I kind of believe it as well but I don't think anybody needs to make a big effort to, to downplay this I think plenty of people have knocked it and, and I'm sure that if Jack is still in I'd be surprised if Jack wasn't in charge next year uh, when he goes into the start of next year he, he might be picking up a few of those little nuggets for outside Absolutely. Absolutely. He's What's your immediate vicinity all Kerry fans where you were yes, season ticket. Yeah, well, actually, behind me there was a, a, a few Galway fans, and I just jumped down a few rows just to, to find someone because because you're, you're just sitting with people you don't truly know. Like the fella I was sitting beside, I, I failed to get his name. Another Kerry fella, he was just saying it was just a really really special uh, year uh, win for him because he he was saying that he had a very tough year with with some family <coughs> and stuff like that, and like you start to build up these like connections over the course of the seventy minutes where yeah. mostly it's like Jesus, what is X doing or whatever it is, and that relationship builds over the course of the 70 minutes and then afterwards it's just ecstasy and then you try and hop overseas to try and find your friends uh, wherever they may be but yeah generally it's Kerry fans but behind me there was a lot of Galway fans it's kind of mixed for the All-Ireland it seems to be I was surrounded by all male Galway fans just happened to be and what were they like? quite quite tense Mm. jubilant at half time but there was a feeling of more to come here job's not done but and actually, they when when the game was level, with what less than ten to go, five to go, sixty-seven, sixty-seven, wasn't it when the free happened? Yeah, mm. they were um, quieter than I thought they'd be with the scoreline and the time left. Two tenths, two tenths. That's Two-t- it. Yeah. It was it. They, my, our section was quiet, like for yeah, a lot yeah, of it. it, it is Even when Shane Walsh was living it up, like yeah. Yeah, like there was obviously like a couple of big scores where you, you couldn't but cheer them as a Galway person. But I, I just would put that down to tension. Like I was even surprised by when when the Clifford nails that free, the, the Kerry fans around me who had the energy to get up and cheer it. I just couldn't. I was like, this is where we're kind of stuck, stuck to the seat now for the time being. I think I think that's just tension. But yeah, I thought they were like, I mean, that, that's kind of one of the prevailing themes as well after the last two games is like, oh, the Dublin fans and the Galway fans are nice. It's mad how when you lose... Yeah, they're they just were. bitter about the opposing fan and that's what I've realised <laughs> over the last couple of weeks that there's nothing wrong with Dublin fans at all I was a problem even when that free was given the, there wasn't much uh, consternation about the Galway free I, I think there was a bit I'll, around me now to be fair I don't know it must it my section. also as uh, I've kind of watched that back I think did the ref actually get that call right when I was coming away from the stadium on Sunday, I was like, "Yeah, oh, as, as as Paddy Andrews said, yeah, referee nerd, yeah." But like <laughs> in, in the in the cut and thrust of the game, <clears throat> yeah, like you know, he hasn't given it once in the match before. Are we are we saying that that did not occur once in the match before? Of course it does. It occurs like. 15 times a game it does but what usually happens is that it's like a, a weak arm that's kind of like left out there and it kind of looks like a clothesline and what happened here was actually the man gets held up by Killian Spillane yeah illegally right and then he pulls the arm into him I think, anyway 
you, you can defend it now. Yeah, no, I, I kind of changed. I, initially, I thought that Kerry were very, very lucky. And after seeing it again, I actually think the, the ref did get it right. But yeah, it is a... Yeah, well, actually, technically... Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. That's exactly what it is. But I, I do think that you can. it's a, it's a diminished level of um, complaint that you can have when you consider that the Gavin White shoulder seems like it was the only good shoulder of the year where he actually correctly timed it. And On McDade? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it could, could have just been retribution for that. Uh, Kevin uh, McStay went through the ringer in commentary. He's watching it back. Went the other way. F- the shoulders first. Yeah. They score off the free. And then, oh, so you think it's retribution? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay, for okay, not okay, giving. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. McStay for the free did the Gary Neville noise now, which he's incorporated into his call commentary, which was like, oh, when the free was given. And then he watched it back and he's like, great call. Great call. Exactly. You know, <laughs> by <laughs> so, the letter of the law. Except you, if you. If, but what's if wrong you, with the letter of the law? Because you should penalise in the first minute. You should, you should but the technical free isn't it is what you they would should call establish it? that this is we're going to call this all game not so if you haven't so do does continuous wrongs make an eventual right um, like if so if, if you, he sees if it as set, it is if you set the tone for how you're going to referee the game and then you change the tone of how you're going to referee the game in the last five minutes that that's wrong but the referee's job is to see an incident then and there sure, and but are you right saying there that, not a you, consistency of a team are we saying that he, he so that's the only time that happened during the game because I don't believe that. Do you think he bear in mind that it was a draw game of 67 minutes gone in the All-Ireland final and he's going to make this contentious decision that's going to change the course I think it's, it's of recent really, history? Yeah, I think it's too much. I don't think he should be making that call unless it's a make-up call for the Gavin White which could well have been because the replays went around and around and around and like Kerry lads are looking at the thing going what yeah. are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? The replays thing is weird. It happens yeah. for some calls and not for others. It needs to be all all the time and like even when it's very contentious, let's just show us. It, yeah. As uh, Broly used the word, infantilising the crowd and it does infantilise the crowd when you don't show them. They've got much better this year. They've started to show them. They've started, And all hell has not yet broken out. No. So, uh, we're, we're, things are improving. Uh, what were you laughing at? Uh, Shifty that in the comments. OMG, Owen has the fear. I remember those days well. And then uh, Dan Delaney, get on to give us some more D2 stories. Yeah, like D- D2 was interesting. Like uh, the, some of the players were saying they couldn't get in. Um, like uh, my my dad had purchased nine tickets uh, in the lead up to <laughs> to the All Ireland final. Like I hadn't because I was obviously on the road, like working last week, and wasn't really getting time to check the phone. Or this is a story you've only told on Twitter Spaces. The nine tickets and your anger at that. Did I tell it on Twitter Spaces? It is, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so uh, sorry. Just if if you, if you haven't yet listened back to the post All Ireland final Twitter Spaces, about fifteen to twenty minutes in, Owen appears out of nowhere, and Tommy has never been happier to have Owen, and Owen has never been happier in his life, and tells this story. <laughs> Which like, he's now looking at me, going, "Did I? Was I? What? Where was I?" <laughs> yeah, my, my dad did buy like nine tickets because uh, like uh, they were, he was kind of like texting to the WhatsApp group, "Should we get tickets for this?" And I was kind of like driving around all the time last week between Galway and Kerry and I haven't really got a chance to say you know like D2 not exactly the greatest place in Dublin I'm not sure is it like worth getting uh, tickets for it and anyway by the time I get home he's like oh yeah I bought nine tickets for last uh, during today I was like oh my god wow well also as well because the halfway in your mind you're thinking if, if they lose this would actually be the, the grimmest place to be like nobody will, would show up so uh, there was a bit of a bit of a gamble on that but it was just unbelievably packed and the the players just had no no room to breathe and even the fact that Coppers is closing down early now as well there was no release valve for people to go across the road so I'd say they went from there 
back to their hotel barring maybe another lock-in somewhere else in, in town which I, I believe there was maybe one or two others but I think the majority of them just had to go back to the hotel so I think it was a bit claustrophobic for them it was obviously a fantastic celebration and they would, uh, they would have bitten your hand off for the, not, to not have that space uh, on, on Sunday morning as well but I think that's probably been the experience that's continued over the last couple of days as well And they were 20 euros They were 20 euros that was the yeah, that was exercising you a lot on, on Sunday night. <laughs> Dad bought nine tickets. He, he, he's basically paid for a round in Bali or wherever they end up going in January. <laughs> and and won't you be delighted when that happens? Yes, yes. Uh, OTVM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effort that's finished your day. Here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock this morning. Tommy Rooney in five minutes time to uh, revel in the managerial America round, which has resulted in something good finally for me. Emma Byrne is going to join us at 10 past 8 to talk about uh, England and how I heard football's coming home on the telly this morning. I wonder what that was about. Sports pages at 8.35. Sports news with John Duggan at 8.40. Jonathan Wilson's going to join us for a brand new slot. You had to be there at 8.50. Seamus Hickey is going to join us at 10 past 9 to talk to us about uh, the Limerick jousts with Brian Cody over the years and then Carl Dennehy was in uh, sparkling form talking about the World Athletics Championships and everything else that's going on there. We should talk about the main story overnight which is... Um, it's kind of not really overnight, but over the last 24 hours, that Cristiano Ronaldo was in Manchester at the training ground yesterday. All the big wigs showed up to have a conversation with him. And uh, various papers reporting that Manchester United are uh, standing firm in their desire to make sure that Cristiano Ronaldo understands he's going to be part of the, the uh, plans for Eric Ten Hag. But the papers who are connected to Ronaldo are like, no change. He's leaving. He wants to leave. His opinion has not in any way been altered by Ferguson being there by uh, Richard Arnold, the chief executive, being there, by Ten Hag being in meetings with his agent, George Mendes. I don't know. It doesn't... It doesn't. Uh, you got to assume that Man United know he's going to leave, but they're just trying to get value, some value out for him at this stage. Yeah, like uh, Ferguson, his role in all this is, is very interesting. Uh, apparently it doesn't happen last year unless Ferguson is involved in terms of getting him back to the club. So those people who say that Ronaldo returning to Manchester United was a mistake... Are people like it's all Alex Ferguson's fault at this point? I mean, but maybe he does come. Maybe you didn't need Alex Ferguson involved for him to, to come to, to the well, club. But Rio, Rio and, and Rio and Fergie, instrumental. Yeah, the duo. Like, what, what is like, like? I mean, how happy are City that he didn't go to them? I was thinking about well, that earlier. They want to get Haaland. The sliding doors moment of what last season would have looked like with Ronaldo. They would have got Haaland. They would have got. Well, what, what they had done with Ronaldo? I mean, just paid him because they're so rich. It doesn't matter. They they made a massive profit in transfers. Isn't it going to be an odd season without Ronaldo? Likely won't go anywhere unless he takes that Saudi Arabia alleged offer, which is uh, astronomical money even by his standards. So if he doesn't take that, unlikely that Atletico Madrid and Chelsea are going to get him. Chelsea have seemed to lost interest over the last few weeks. Atletico like him. Diego Simeone likes him, but probably can't afford him. So say he doesn't go to either of those options, well, stays at United, Alvaro, we're going to see the first season of Ronaldo on the bench regularly. Alvaro Morata still has to leave Atletico. There's, you know, there's, there are still some pieces that can fall and move around here that will create space at a Champions League club for Ronaldo. And bear in mind, one of the papers pointed out, he started last season at Juventus. He actually played for Juventus last season. Yeah. And then the move happened and it happened really quickly at the very end. So... He, I think I think what Manchester United are doing are saying uh, we're in charge there's a new sheriff in town we will decide if you leave or not and we definitely don't want you here if you don't want to be here like on the QT I don't think they want them there at all I think we find out in a year's time when Ronaldo leaves the club in a free transfer that Ten Hag was humouring him for a year why, why would he do that though because it's not great to have 
We saw last season. have to play him. But we saw last season, every time you subbed him off or any time anything happened, he didn't go to the away fans. He's disrespected the manager. It's like, why would you volunteer to have that for any reason other than financial? Like, that, the only thing that can be happening now is Man United are deciding that we're going to try and run the club properly and make some good financial decisions. I understand that. But at the same time, this bit of like the Ronaldo circus, which it is, will follow this team around as long as he is there. And imagine being shot of him and Pogba yeah. at the same time. It's like yeah. a completely different environment and a completely different atmosphere. Well, it depends how long Ted Hag stays. If he, if he spends maybe five years at Manchester United, which is obviously no guarantee given the modern history of the club, but say he does and Ronaldo leaves after a year, it'll be forgotten about in three years' time that Ronaldo played under Ten Hag because I feel, right now speaking, unless something dramatically changes, which it could before the window closes, is that I think Ten Hag would just leave Ronaldo out of a lot of squads because that would take away the problem of, say, Brentford last season where you take off Ronaldo and he's sulking on the bench and it's so visible and it makes an impact on everybody else around him. So if you keep Ronaldo physically out of the way... Isn't he likely to play in games against teams like Brentford, though? He might play every so often. Yeah. Uh, he, and when he plays, I guess he'll play the full game or near the full game, or unless he scores two or three and they take him off. But I think he might leave him out for four or five games in a row just so the spotlight physically isn't on him and then they can focus on the rest of the squad because they've had a very good pre-season. Now, so did David Moyes, so in, did Louis van Gaal. In that pre-season instance, doesn't mean much. In, in that instance. Ronaldo's not around. In that instance, why would you bother spending all the wages that you're spending on him if you can just get rid of him for nothing? I don't think it's Ten Hag's problem. I think the, don't think the wages is, is his issue. He's, he's inherited Ronaldo, wouldn't have brought him in. They pay him already like this. It's like, fine, you can continue to pay him and we'll use him. I don't think he's going to be put under huge pressure by the Glazers to start him or by John Murtagh or Richard Arnold to actually play the guy. No, I don't, I, I don't I either. I think he's had, his reputation has never been higher now than Hyde because he's come in. He seems to be a bit of a disciplinary and you have all these stories coming out over the summer. Andy Mitten was on the show last night confirming how much of a disciplinarian he is and not so much um, in a petty instance like Louis van Hal, but definitely more so than Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and Ralph Ragnick. The players seem to be responding to it and he's had a good pre-season, pre-season has a great CV with Ajax. So stock's never been higher. If he wants to leave Ronaldo out of the squads, I don't think there'll be too much dissent from United fans, particularly the timing of Ronaldo's um, wanted departure, which was you know the middle of the summer. He could have said it in April. So United fans aren't necessarily too happy with Ronaldo. A lot of them, and then you have about 30% of the fans going to Andy Minton last night who want him to stay, who feel, well, he scored 24 goals last season in all competitions and was the club's top scorer in a season that was uh, particularly terrible by Manchester United's modern standards. All right. If you're a United fan, like Colm, get in touch this morning. 0879-180-180 is WhatsApp number. You can use the hashtag OTBAM. Of course, you can leave a comment on the YouTube stream. Tommy Rooney, good morning to you. Morning, lads. How are we doing? Very good. Coming good to in, see Owen back. Coming in hot and heavy there for us. What's going on? All is good. Is my mic a bit hot there? Is it? Sorry. Uh, all is well. All going well. It's uh, interesting times, isn't it? How excited are you, Tommy? Colm O'Rourke in charge of the Meath footballers 20 years too late but better late than never not necessarily 20 years too late well he should have got the job after boiling right they should have given it to him then they should have given it to him one of the three times before that he applied yeah yeah there's definitely a feeling that in and around 05, 06, 07 um, a Colm Coyle does get it so one of the Meath legends do get a hold of it but when you're looking at the Jubilee teams that are out at the weekend from the Dublin 95 team you know, there's been such a, an influence from that team on on Dublin football over the last 10, 11 years. Um, I think three of the players in that team have now managed Desi, Jim and Gilroy. Whereas on the Mead side, I think it was just Colin Coyle. 
Um, so even if you go back further from the the Mead team of '88 to you know '92 or so, again, not many of them got a chance to manage post Boylan. Um, this is massive. Like, it, look at when back in '04 or '05, O'Rourke had managed Mead's uh, first schools teams to Hogan Cup success. St. Pat's and Avon won three in five years. That was massive for Mead football, and there was a bit of a buzz around Mead football at the time. That stuff's important. Like you, you see the history that Galway have with Jarlets and their underage success over the last twenty years. Galway haven't necessarily gone away over the last twenty years. Mead football has. What what happened um, last night and the last I guess twenty four forty eight hours, like in terms of what we've saw on social media, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Okay, so news broke on Monday. There was slight murmurings over the weekend that something was coming. There's been a lot of murmurings around GA managers over the weekend. Some of it has been absolute rubbish. Um, like what? What's rubbish? Like what, do we just do that? For, like, what's rubbish? Because I've heard all the rumours. Erroneous piffle. There's been what's a lot rub- of erroneous rubbish. What, what, are the, what are the erroneous bits? Are we talking simply about Mead here? No. Or, well, oh, the, the I presume you're talking about... Oh, sorry. Let's just stick with Mead. Sorry. We can go back to the other stuff. Yeah. Sorry. There, so there was erroneous piffle around Mead as well. Well, that's, well I don't know if I described it as erroneous piffle, but... Um, I'm not sure if you saw the tweets last night from Bernard Flynn. No, tell everybody because a lot of people won't yeah, have we'll, to assume we'll, we have We'll come back to that in a minute. So, one o'clock on Monday, it emerges just after one o'clock. It was half one that Colin O'Rourke has been appointed or he's been put forward by the management committee in Mead. There was a three man committee put together to come up with the new manager. It emerged on Monday they had selected Colin O'Rourke and his management team with Barry Callahan and Stephen Braid to be the next management team in Mead. Last night in in Navan or in Dungani, there was a an executive county board meeting and O'Rourke was given a three-year term with a review after a second year. That's all confirmed. Uh, late last night, another Mead legend who we know was going for the job, Bernard Flynn, sent a tweet. And I think we have it to have a look at there. Now, this is tweet number one. I'll I would really like to it. sincerely yeah. thank... Go on, yeah, sorry, you got to it. wish Colin and the lads all the very best going forward. It was very disappointing to find out on social media yesterday who the next Mead manager would be. But a big, big thank you to Robbie Brennan and Stephen Rochford for their loyalty and support. I'll come back to that in a minute. Because 40 minutes later, that tweet is deleted and a new one is put up that you'll be able to see now. I sincerely wish Colin and the lads all the very best going forward. It was disappointing to find out on social media yesterday who the next manager would be. But a massive thank you to my entire backroom team for their loyalty, effort and genuine support. So if we just go back to the first one. I was surprised in a way to see this because by all accounts the manner in which Mead ran their search for the next manager was incredibly impressive. Like there wasn't a murmuring of who was getting this job lads. I had no idea that Colin O'Rourke was getting it. Like it, there was nothing coming out. I know that the management committee there was three of them Conor Donoghue Sean Kelly who had been involved in the coaching of Mead for a long time and Liam Kearns who is a, you know got a very important role up in Crow Park and is a very well respected man in the county they were all tasked by the county management team by the county board management committee to to go and find the next Mead manager Liam Hayes is talking about how important a job this is this is massive it's monumental for Mead football they need to, to stop the rot that has set in over the last 12-15 years McEntee had 18 months where it got good we got Division 1 football we got a couple of Leinster finals where we just didn't get far enough. Mead football needs to get back there. So this is a huge appointment. I know that there was a number of interviews held. I have no idea who else went for that job. Everything was kept quiet and kept in-house. 
and I can put it on the record here, that everyone who didn't get that job were informed in a phone call between half 11 and one o'clock on Monday before it emerged on social media that they had been unsuccessful for the post. So I look, I think that the, the use of language there is a little liberal and it's unfortunate because it's clear that Bernard Flynn was desperate to go for that job. He was the only other person that I knew was going for the job. Um, it's a pity that it hasn't worked out for him, but I think Colin O'Rourke was the outstanding candidate here. Rob, um, Robbie Brennan had been part of the Mead Minor Football Team Management Group last year. Is that correct? So it, it, no, that's not correct. No, Robbie. Oh well, well he was in. He was in and around. But Rob, Robbie Brennan was part of uh, the Kilmacud team that that just fell short in the All Ireland Club Final. But he was also part of the Mead Under Twenties ticket. Bernard Flynn had put a dream team together. Well, I'm just reading um, the piece from Donica Boyle and December 2021. Croke's manager Robbie Brennan will be part of the Meath minor football management team in 2020. Sorry, he was part of the, the minor football team, but in a, in a smaller capacity. He was assistant manager to Burnham Flynn with the 20s team right. that had that fallen out in Mead um, 18 months ago, two years ago. So, look, I don't know why exactly they didn't go for Burnham Flynn and whoever was on his management team. I found it interesting that tweet was deleted and put back up because we know there's a couple of vacancies going in other counties where one of the names is rumoured to be heavily in the mix in one of them. So, um, I wonder I mean, whether the name is Stephen Rochford just to, for look, for any anybody you know, yeah. that it was in the original tweet so and I'm sure you, you'd be a little bit upset if you're Rochford going I mean uh, you know if, uh, didn't we didn't necessarily need to have that made public did we he, he just he does tweet saying thanks to the last for the support so they could have just been you know yeah. big Bernard Flynn fans they, Flynn, yeah. the second tweet says big thanks to my entire backroom team <laughs> so, so it kind of fixes it just but, in case you're in any doubt but it's it's interesting look I think it was um there's, look, there's rumours going around the county of who Colin O'Rourke might have coming in his backroom team. There's no point really uh, talking about them because it's impossible to know. Are they, are they know. also Mead Legends? Is he putting together they're, the no, Magnificent Seven? No, they actually seven? aren't. No? They actually aren't also Mead Legends. They're, right. they're, they're, they're big high, names from outside the county. And I think that is Paddy Talley would only have to drive half the way from Tyrone to Mead that he has to drive from Tyrone to Kerry. But, like, but, but Stephen Bray and Barry Callaghan are locked in, are they? Stephen Bray and Barry Callan are part of his management team. Okay. So, like, you've got three corner forwards, three exceptionally talented, important people in Mead football over the last 30, 40 years. Um, O'Rourke obviously goes back to the 80s. Barry Callaghan was a quality player in the 90s and has also been involved in a lot of the good stuff that's been happening in Mead football behind the scenes. There is boring stuff happening in Mead football recently that is starting to come to fruition and coming together. This year on, for the first time, there's going to be regional championships in the county, similar to Kerry. It's not exactly the way it works in Kerry, but they're bringing it in where players from junior clubs and intermediate clubs are going to get an opportunity after the club championships to put themselves in the shop window. O'Rourke is speaking in the Me Chronicle this morning. There's lovely photos of him outside of his house and he's in some of the other papers as well, talking about the fact that it's going to be a blank slate and he's going to be looking around the county for players. Himself, working in Pats for the last 30 years, he'll know so many players. He's been coaching Simonstown. They've won two Keegan Cups back-to-back to senior title in Mead in 16 and 17. He'll know all the players. Barry Callan has been involved with the under-20s um, in recent years and, and, and got on very well. And Stephen Bray is our last All-Star and, uh, by all accounts, very highly regarded young coach. So that that's impressive and that's important. But going off what Bernard Flynn's tweets there, whoever he had in his backroom team, it's clear that Flynn was putting together a strong team. He had one for the 20s before when that all fell apart. It's so important who you have. Let's not kid ourselves here. Colin O'Rourke is not going to be on the pitch coaching. Jack O'Connor wasn't doing it this year. I, I doubt Porrick Joyce was doing it this year. And I think Jack Keener said he was doing a bit of the coaching. 
a little bit and that's fine you can do little bits you can jump in here and there like we've all been involved in, in even club teams where you'd have a manager and a coach and sometimes if they work really well together you've got a win and formula there you've got a manager who can step back and watch what's going on keep an eye on everything and then you've got a coach who's more hands on dealing with the football the style of play he's obviously working with the manager on that as well so Mead are talking a big game here I can't imagine that Colin O'Rourke has gone for this at whatever age he is possibly one of the oldest intercommunity managers I think I've seen to get a job at the first time he stuck his neck on the line here he's going to walk you know walk the walk after talking for a long time there's no way he's doing that if Mead aren't being backed here and Mead must smell blood they must smell blood looking around the county and the province that there's a chance to get back on the horse and put ourselves back where we should be are you involved um, in the backroom team Tommy as a coach is that what you're telling us you've got big names and you're, you're the not. one I'm, I'm, I'm the Andrews the other side of the country it's too early in your, in your coaching journey is it there's been a lot of tweets regarding Paddy Anders and James Dunhu and, and rumours that they're going to end up in various management tickets and Sunday game panels over the next 18 months and look at I, I can confirm that that's not going to happen no Oof. way <laughs> I mean <laughs> two lads are like what Tommy shut up <laughs> what um, the, you, you mentioned Joyce there Joyce obviously got a lot of credit last week for his first interview where he talks about wanting to win in All-Ireland and Colin Murray's first interview is fairly bullish not quite on that level but he says I would regard that we will have failed if we don't beat Dublin and we don't get to Division 1 of the league that would be a fairly clear measurement of value in most people's minds beating Dublin would be the measurement of progress so I guess that's an even more specific goal beating Dublin is the only measure of success for this Mead team is that, is that realistic Tommy in, in two years? Oh, 100% yeah. and I think like well, sorry let me let me rephrase that slightly Division 1 football is absolutely essential and we have to get back to Division 1 and we have to stay in Division 1 this group of players and the players that come in now are going to need 16 games of Division 1 football in the space of whatever 12, uh, 18 months um, beating Dublin has to be a goal this is not the greatest team of all time that we saw when six in a row All-Ireland we, we've seen it there's chinks in the armour um, there's been uncharacteristic issues in that camp over the last two years they aren't the squeaky clean incredible champions that we saw for a long time there are problems there Mead are a long way off it an awful long way off it but I think what we saw with Pork Joyce and, and what I loved about it and similar when Jack O'Connor you know once it settled in that he had the job last year, you knew that he was right, that he was right for this team in ways. Like, Jack O'Connor put the chest out and he's a carry manager who's done it now so many times. He's, he's been there since 04 and, or since the 90s and, and however many capacities. He understands Kerry football. He knows how to be a Kerry manager. Pork Joyce at the same time, he seemed to just facilitate a level of confidence in Galway once it clicked and once he got it right, let's not forget that we got very excited about Joyce the first time he came in. Like, we were very excited about that Galway football. Things fell apart and he reacted and he brought in a strong management team around him when he got O'Neill and a couple of others involved. So, it felt like Joyce could stick the chest out and Galway people could stick the chest out and they could believe and they had a bit of hope. And sometimes that's what a county needs. It needs a spark. It needs a bit more belief. They need to dip into what they are. Like, you saw it with Kildare last year. There was a bit of a buzz around the county again. And hopefully this is the spark that Mead Football can get. They aren't finished yet. Like speaking to a couple of sources and in the background of Mead Football and, and reading Colin Rourke's words, it's been repeated time after time that we aren't finished putting together our backroom team. So in the next four weeks, I believe there's going to be very interesting news coming out. And again, going back to it, didn't happen for Bernard Flynn. He's a legend. We talk about the great All-Ireland Forum 
uh, final performances on losing sides. I had a look back in the, the Mead Down game from 1991 the other night. Bernard Frimp kicked six points that day. So close to getting a goal. Mead came back from the dead. Colin Rourke coming off the bench to inspire it. I know I'm going back to the heydays here, but this is what we need. We need a bit of spark from somewhere. And I think this is a chance for Mead football to get it right. Yeah. Okay, you're very excited. I can, we can all, we can feel it coming through. Um, and, and it's great to get the job done, Jared, this early. Well, you know I, what I mean, like, I, I, if you look massive. at if you look at some of the other counties that um, are sitting on their hand at the moment and waiting for decisions to be made, it'll be interesting to see how quickly those appointments do get made because the club matches are starting and have started in many counties. And you want to be giving everybody an opportunity to perform well in this, and then get on your strength and conditioning program, and then when training happens properly in November, December, to actually be given a fair opportunity to make the team. And the only way you can do that is if you've got a management team in place now. Yeah, 100%. Um, and look, at it's, uh, it, it's, there's word that it's getting moving a bit closer in, in Mayo, but it's been rumblings that how that's been handled has been, has left a bit, you know, left, left a little bit to be desired. I think, um, there's five names that we, we do believe are in the mix for that job. Mike Finnerty was reported in the Mayo News a couple of weeks ago. I don't think that's changed. So I'm not sure where they're going to go. The five names? The five names are, well, Rochford is supposedly in the mix. Kevin McStay is supposedly in the mix. Mike Solon is supposedly in the mix. Ray Dempsey and Morris Sheridan. So they're the five names that have been highly touted and heavily touted in May over the last number of weeks. In Donegal, another massive appointment. The nominations for the clubs don't close until August 15th. Like, that's still three weeks away. I, I just don't know why some of these counties aren't getting their jobs done. We saw the rumours in the papers. <clears throat> I don't know how true they are that, you know, Jason Sherlock is, is on his way to Monaghan. We've heard very little about that since. We'll wait and see on that one. If it does happen, that'll be a very interesting one. And then obviously, in Offaly, the job's not done. Um, Tomas O'Shea's obviously been heavily, heavily linked. And then Wexford, Longford, um, I think there's, is that the other one? Is, is, is there another job that's come up in the last day or two? But, but yeah, that's that's it at the moment. It feels like a bit of an arms race, doesn't it? Like as if every it's county massive. board has had like a, a little bit of an injection of belief since Dublin have been beaten or something. As in, like we've had three different All Ireland champions over the last three years, and uh, a few different All Ireland finalists as well. That everybody's kind of thinking we could we could do that when they look at Galway and uh, to to a degree Tyrone the previous year. Two quick points on this as well, Tommy. Were you saying this is the first decade since something something where we've had different All Ireland winners for the first three years? Was that the nineties? Uh, that wasn't my tweet, oh, no, but I, I have been saying that it's very similar to the twenty tens all year. Um, entering that space. Well, the one thing twenty ten. Sorry, three uh, decades. In the one thing about the noughties was it was first time managers uh, who were getting the job done each time. It was Mickey Hart in his first season who won, just like um, Logan and Doher, and then Jack O'Connor, first time manager, as in in his first year with this group. Um, getting it done as well so it'll be interesting to see and did Desi win his first year with the group he did so that's three years in a row where, where that's happened as well um, yeah I, and like I don't I, I, I'm know. sorry Owen I haven't heard you the last 15 minutes but I don't know if Owen's been talking a big talk about two in a row has he absolutely not trying, I, trying to yarrow it down I, like I I, yeah. I saw what was the what was the tweet put out yesterday like I mean I love how everybody's trying to say that I'm saying this sort of stuff uh, there was a tweet put out yesterday saying that I do believe that uh, there's a uh, a chance that Kerry will go on and dominate over the next few years and the clip was me saying why two in a row are really hard and why I would actually say Dublin could win the All-Ireland next year so people want to think that Kerry, think are, are, Kerry people are talking two in a row I'm not I'm not buying that but uh, as I said yesterday it's, that's different to multiple All-Irelands I think two in a row is hard 
Um, mm. it, it, obviously, it is hard. Uh, only very, very good teams managed to pull it off, but uh, very, very good teams might not have had the armory that this team has. And I do think when when listening to James, I don't know who was talking on the football pod. He was talking about they didn't really get that bounce uh, when they won the All Ireland twenty fourteen. Was fourteen, wasn't it? Where the three lads came back into the group and they're like, "Oh, that's all we need to do." But actually, this group are younger and they're not going to have three legends coming back into the team to boost them they're going to have to take that responsibility themselves and also they have five months of partying to do to get it out of their system like it's, it's actually I think all very well set up for uh, this group to go on and now there's the chippiness of the oh Conor Callow would have beaten us would he would he yeah. let's, let's see about that called, uh, famously Munster had a dig about um, no Rocky Elsom to Leinster hmm. and it pissed Leinster off so much that they smashed him again the next year just to make sure that like well we did it without Rocky Elsom mm. so there'll be a it'll come to be that those lines about ah you would have lost that game and then it would have been Dublin's All-Ireland again that's all if yeah. me granny had balls he'd be me granddad one last thing right the down job came up and on the face of it yes, the down that's job the, other one, sorry. the down job not a great job right uh, in I would say the same way that the dairy job not a great job and then they find the right person who manages to get the great club side who has been dominant in the county on board and all those players play for the, the county team and suddenly they're competitive again. Just recently, one of the stars of the club team that is the best club team in the county came out and were like, well, you know, maybe maybe if one of our lads was in charge, things might be a bit different. So, shit or get out the pot, Kilku. Put your man forward. Put somebody forward. Anybody to take that job who is who has your, you know, oh, it's okay, we, we accept this guy's one of ours. And uh, let's be having you. Come on. It'll be a very interesting appointment whoever gets it next. It'll yeah, that's very, like very that's that's a, that's a sentence that just speaks to I know more than Yeah, come on, Tommy. No, I don't. Come on. No, yeah, we're all friends I'm, I'm telling you to shit or get off the pot too. No, no, genuinely I don't know. And I think what I've learned from the Mead situation is it's better if you don't hear anything. Genuinely. Like I heard nothing about what well, I did. Like there was there was murmurs of flames in the mix, okay? that was known in the county um, I heard nothing else about who else was going for it I had a strong feeling that there wasn't a chance we were going to go for an outside manager I just think that that's in the county that resonates in the county they feel like they need ma- a mead man as a figurehead that's what they have I do believe that it's essential that the the coaches that come in are from outside I, th- I think that's so important that they're the right people it doesn't matter where they're from but they're the right people for this management team and for this group of players I, that's very important over the next three or four weeks I, I think if we're hearing murmurings on WhatsApp or, you know, far-fetched rumours, I think that's a shocking sign and a very poor indictment of a selection committee and of a county if that's getting out the way that some stuff has been emerging. So I'm not really buying half of that stuff. Uh, what, what's the most outrageous rumour you've heard? Uh, I'm not even going to repeat it because it was so outlandish. I can't remember what time of the morning it was put into our WhatsApp group. I don't Um, It was like two days ago. I'm not going to repeat it, like... It wasn't, the, it wasn't the one that everyone was talking about at Crow Park at the weekend. It came out after the weekend. About a manager stepping down. Um, yeah, okay. Um, they're, they're absolutely outrageous, some of them that are coming through. It's silly season, that. It's, it's like... It is silly season. I, I actually don't great. think... That you, I don't think you can blame uh, counties who are taking their time and doing all their due diligence and saying the process is bad because they're doing it. If somebody feels like they're not going to get the job, the process is always bad. That's what happens everybody who doesn't get the job thinks the process was terrible but if yeah. the right person ends up getting the job and it's an extra week along the way 
that's not a disaster. And I actually think that, like, again, it's an amateur organization where you can't expect complete confidentiality the whole way along the process because too many people need to know what what's happening and to be kept abreast of the situation. Like, the yeah. Galway hurling well, getting Shefflin last year, that was a miracle that they were able to pull that off. But it was it was so impressive with how they managed that and it was so well handled. And I think, like, there's so many different... Like, Colin Rourke had to leave or, or inform his Simonstown club that he was leaving and he'd be taking the me job. Like, he's been over that club for a couple of years. That happened on Monday morning or Monday afternoon. Like, a lot of people have to be told these things. Yeah. But I, just to be that, fair to Bernard Flynn, like, just what I was going back to as well, when I said he was a little liberal with the use of the English language, he was told he wasn't getting the job the same as however many other people went for it. I actually don't know who else went for it. There was one other name that came up. I know Carl O'Brick was interviewed. It was on the We Are Mead podcast. O'Brick is somebody that Mead people would have in line to get this job in two or three years' time. He was involved with the with the underage teams recently and, and is touted as being in the mix down the line. But nobody there was told who was getting the job. Like, do you know, if, if you were going for a CEO job, you might get a call to be told that you're not getting it. But you're not going to be told who's getting the job. There's people that have to be told before that. So I think that's what happened to Mead this week. And I just wanted to clear that up because there has been messing going on and shenanigans in the background and, and poor things that have come out about the county board in the last couple of years when regards to the McAtee situation last year and a few other bits and pieces over the last decade. I don't think this was poorly handled. I think this was handled exceptionally well. And it gives me hope that Mead football is on a is on a good path here and onto a winner. All right. Uh, Mossel Funk says, Meath have been a badly managed county for over 20 years now. The amount of clubs in the county might need more than just Aurora coming in. Needs a whole overhaul. There's a lot of that happening in the background and I think there's actually an announcement coming on that next week. So there's a lot happening in Meath football over the next couple of weeks that we'll keep an eye on. Uh, Owen says, uh, clearly Kerry might have a chip about XYZ being said about hypothetical, but so do Dublin, so do Galway, so do Mayo. This will be a fun few years in football. It's I mean, I, it, yeah, we all thought that though when the Dubs beat Kerry for the first time. It was like, oh, this is great. We've got Donny Gall, Mickey Hart's still there, it's not going away. This Mayo team are really good. And then Dublin just was like, no, 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 no. There's age profile of that Kerry team, yeah. rising superstars. I, think about how many players played badly for Kerry and they still kicked 20 points in an all-in final. Come on, I don't think anybody's paying enough attention to this. Kerry are and not going away anytime, anywhere soon. I don't think you can say people aren't paying enough attention to Kerry right now. That's the, I think they've got their due credit and uh, maybe you're saying um, that they're not getting enough credit, sure. I, actually, I am amazing. I think that um, before anybody accuses me of carry bias, I think they were they strange. were really poor in the first half, and I think that was a, about the pressure. Like uh, in 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 the second half when they started to play and were a little bit kind of less self conscious, they played very well, and the game wasn't close. Like it was oh, four points. Was Kerry should have scored two goals at the end of the game and actually were kind of running the ball down. But the thing is, when their team was younger, they were actually better. It turned out because that's what the substitutions were. It brought the age, the average age down substantially at halftime. Yeah, um, and so, so maybe that's, that's that that could support your argument. Sure. Look, we'll see, and we'll have plenty of time to talk about it. Tommy, good stuff. You're a happy man. Thanks, lads. Thanks for allowing me to talk about meat football in a positive light. Really uh, and sorry, it. congratulations. You guys were nominated for the uh, Irish oh. Sports Podcast Awards. Thank you. Yeah, it was lovely to be nominated. It was great to see that yesterday. Uh, it was class. Yeah, Will you win? Class. Did did we win? Will you win? Or will we win? Uh there's. There's serious competition there, Owen. So we're just going to put the head down and just do what we've been doing all season long, and, and hopefully that you know we come out on the right who's, side. Of it. Who's your main rival? It's Niblock, isn't it? Uh, there's they make GA social. There is trying to think now. Niblock makes people it cry. Tommy, you guys have had yes, no, no and, tears. And 
that's what I've been saying to everyone that, that we've no chance Thomas makes everyone cry I'm only joking uh, I think Paddy Andrews described Thomas Niblock as the Oprah Winfrey of he's got to win it then yeah. Yeah. yeah so he's in the mix so the pressure's on and there's other great podcasts in the mix as well I think an old colleague of ours Neil Tracy has his, his, his RT Rugby podcast in the mix there's the Three Amigos podcast from Cork and there's Al Foran's Golmet right. up and, and Go Loud upstairs. So there's other podcasts in the mix. But also, Jer, every podcast is, is available to win in the Listener's Choice Award. All you got to do is to go to the Irish Podcast Awards.ie forward slash vote. Search for your favourite podcast, i.e. OTBAM, and vote. Oh, I didn't even know we were in it. Yeah, everyone's in it now. No. Everyone can win in that okay. one. So that's no, open to everyone. We, we don't Thanks want you all to go to. Where, where was it again? Uh, Irish Podcast Awards that I. We don't want you to go to Irish Podcast Awards that I and pick our podcast. Vote. We definitely don't want that. You should. Seventeen minutes past eight this morning. OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Your yeah. twenty twenty two listeners' choice winner of the year podcast. OTBAM here. After the break, we're live with the former Ireland captain Emma Byrne to review England's thumping semi final win over Sweden last night. During the ads, you're going to hear Tommy James and Paddy reflecting on the All Ireland final in this week's Football Pod episode thirty of the Football Pod is available for your earballs right now. There were two massive moments that probably will go kind of under the radar. The first one was, I think it was the 64th minute. Teams were level. Galway pressed up on the kickout and Shane Ryan picks out Gavin White under the Hogan yeah. with an unbelievable kickout. Like, mm. that's almost... The, the It's like a Ron Nogara moment. Joe Ron Nogara said, I, I, was, I had to prepare myself to want to have the most pressureful situation in the match. And that's how I dealt with it. Like, Shane Ryan had the ball down there with everyone looking at him. Galway pressed up, leveling the other final five minutes to go. Can I get this kick out off? And he pings one beautifully to Gavin White. I think Kerry get a score off it. That was unbelievable play. And then when Paul Murphy came on and Kerry were a few points up, they could have got tentative, maybe drawing the pressure on themselves. He hits Shawnee Shea with a backdoor cut, hand pass. You know, Shawnee kind of shows to Paul Murphy in the middle of the field. And then he doubles in back behind. I think um, Gavin White actually ends up fisting the ball over the bar. The bar yeah. but like those brave plays, like giving a, a backdoor cut hand pass yeah. last, last minute of an All-Ireland like, is risky. It could have been turned over and they gone down the other way. Yeah. In two matches now, Paul has stepped up and done those risky passes that have paid off. Yeah, like, so was... those, two, those two moments were big for Kerry. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. At 20 minutes past eight this morning, we're talking about the Euros last night and England absolutely thumped Sweden 4-0. They're through to the final at Wembley. It's a sellout at the weekend and it's coming home was playing on uh, Sky Sports News in one of the ad breaks this morning. So Emma Byrne, good morning to you. How are you? Good morning. How are we? England are pretty good, really. All things considered, they are very, very good at the moment. They are. And it was actually uh, the first time I texted one of my uh, former Arsenal teammates and I went, OK, I'm saying it now. England are very good. That's it. And she was like, she replied, I'm shocked you're saying this. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, they're very, very good. Very, very impressive from everybody, everybody on the bench, the management. It just looks like a very, very solid team at the moment. Serena Vigman, 19 games unbeaten, scored over 100 goals. So it, this isn't, this isn't, unexpected in some ways but I think the quality of the performances and the absolute dominance they're showing so far that is unexpected yeah I mean they've had a great you know build up to the tournament and bringing Serena Wiegman in was just a fantastic idea from the FA but I think what for me what's more surprising is the fact that they can handle the pressure they can soak up the pressure from oppositions for me that are simply better than them (laughs) 
and they soak up that pressure for them. They're able to manage the game very well, which is something we haven't seen from them. And then they know when to attack. And when they attack, they score their goals. So in general, all around, it's just a, a, a fantastic tournament for them. Plus everybody's fit, everybody's ready to play. It's just, it just seems like everything's right for them at the moment. Massive Serena Wiegmann fans in the house there with you, Emma, by the sounds of things. Uh, she was uh, saying afterwards that uh, this result will go all over Europe and the world. It was such a performance that tomorrow everyone will talk about us. She's kind of leaned into this, this idea that we are the favourites now. I presume they're going to be favourites for the final, depending on what happens tonight. But they're not playing this down because there's nothing else you can do as England manager when the hype starts to build, but just lean into it as much as you can. Yeah, I mean, there's only so much uh, parrying off you can do. And, you know, managers do it all the time. They they always say they're not the favourite. They always want to go into the game as the underdogs. And Serena Wiegmann's team might have been able to do that a little bit, but not anymore. I mean, they've just shown that they're able to, to dominate games. You can just feel the atmosphere in the stadiums, the countries behind them. You know, they just they have to accept it and go with it now at this stage. And and maybe that can give them even more confidence going into the final if they can deal with it well. Can I ask you about the uh, the, the Russo goal last night? Um, it looks incredible, but I want to get your perspective on it from from the goalkeeper's standpoint, because it's a split second thing. I presume as a goalkeeper, you end up feeling a little bit foolish, but it is very, very hard to, to do anything about it when you don't expect the player to back heal it. Yeah, I mean, I actually felt really sorry for Lindell as a, a goalkeeper myself because it's a really difficult um, shot to handle because what would have been going through Lindell's mind is where is she going to go next? She had her back to goals, so she's going to think she's going to lay it off or, you know, she has to be aware of the dangerous players around her. Um, you never expect someone to backheel it from there. It's the cheekiest thing I've seen in, in a in a semi-finals, and it was just a fantastic goal. There's not much Lindal could have done. She just looks a little bit silly, which is is why I feel a bit sorry for her because it went through her legs. But at the end of the day, it's it's similar to when someone takes a shot and, and you know a player lets it go through their legs and you look silly because you haven't gone for it you're expecting it to come off someone else mm. or you're expecting it to go somewhere else and um it was just you have to give credit to Russo and not look at the goalkeeper there 100 100% like uh, I, when you're um training obviously the, 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 the I presume it's like a balance between trying to make your body as big as possible and not getting nutmegged when you're going one on one again this is just a, a freak occurrence last night because of the back heel nature of it so I'm talking here more about one on one situations when uh, a striker is bearing down on goal yeah I mean the, a different situation you have to try and make yourself as big as possible and, and doing that um, realistically is legs out arms out but you can't do that because of the, the the nutmeg situation so you always have your legs close together and also it's the worst thing especially in training everybody loves it and it drives me insane but anyway I, I turn into a bit of a, a crazy woman when someone does that to me and it's what players always look to do because they like the flair and, the, and they like you know it's probably the easiest way to go through not around to go through a goalkeeper um, but in general, when you're you're defending in a one v one situation, you try to to keep your legs uh, closer together. As well as that, you can move quicker, you can adjust quicker when your legs are together. But um, in this situation, Linda was just getting set, and I think she was thinking about what the next phase of play. She definitely wasn't expecting that. Mm. Why were they able to dominate this game after Spain caused them so many difficulties? 
Um, I think it was just key moments in the game. And I think, I don't think they dominated the game at the start. I think Sweden dominated the game and I think Sweden looked more likely to score. And at this stage of the tournament and at this stage in women's football in general, the standard has risen so much that if you don't take your chances or if you don't, you know, turn the screw at key moments, it allows the other team to, to, to get back in the game. And it's what England are doing extremely well, which is the surprise, in fact, for me. They haven't done that before. They found it very difficult to get back on top of the game. But now what they're doing is they're soaking up that pressure. They're riding their look a little bit. You know, Sweden should have been 1-0 up in the first 10 minutes. Didn't happen. Um, they had two chances. They didn't score them. And then England were able to get back up on top. And then before the half, Beth Mead, you know, she did nothing all game. We weren't speaking about her all game. And then she just had that one key moment and put the ball away. That's what this tournament is about now, just taking those chances. And then when you take them, being able to stay strong at the back, which England have done extremely well as well. And then, of course, you just grind them down. And England have been just grinding teams down. We've seen it in the Spain game. Spain were a better team. They, they dominated in possession. They should have scored in key moments. They didn't. And again, England just were able to, to you know, nick those moments from them and then come out on top. Um, what would a victory in this competition do for football in England? Um, I don't know if you saw the scenes from Kerry. You know, it's such a long time since Kerry won. It's a whole eight years, Emma. But yeah. you can see the, like, the generations passing on to the next generation and all the kids are there. They're getting their pictures taken. David Clifford is walking amongst them and he's a god. Like Beth Mead is going to be a god whenever they're celebrating the trophy if they win it. So what yeah. kind of a momentum shifter and game changer would it be for women's football? Yeah, it's it's huge. I mean, they've already had success in that count, you know, already. Just the fact that they're filling the stadiums and they're playing nice football, everyone's enjoying it. So it's already been an, a, a success. But if they win it, it's just, you know, it just is going to completely rule sports for the next year. We're going to be talking about the women's team winning the Euros. We're going to be talking about, you know, the the success they've had little kids are going to be talking about in school it's just it's it's a huge thing for for england and as far as i'm concerned ireland because we've got such close link with them as well um a lot of our girls you know are watching bbc at home in ireland they're watching this and it's just fantastic to see and for some for a team that's quite close to ours to be able to win something like that gives us a bit of motivation as well but um yeah, in general, I think for the FA as well, it's just it shows that what they've been doing over the last 15 years has been the right thing. And the investments they've been putting in and the the different structures that they've been implementing, it's just proved that it's working. Speaking of Ireland, does Sweden's performance give you any concern that Finland might not might actually do them in September and as a result Ireland could be in trouble because I think we forget that I think we've kind of assumed that Sweden are just going to beat them in September Um, Not really judging on I mean Finland you know they're a good team I've enjoyed watching them play as well you know they're they're quite a strong team but I do think Sweden are are a lot stronger I think this will probably give them even more of a bite to go and and you know beat Finland they didn't perform I don't think they've had a great tournament Um, they certainly won't be happy with their performance yesterday and I'm hoping that that'll give them a a kick up the backside so to speak and then and then go and and hammer Finland because we need them to do that I'm not really worried about that Sweden are a better team 
their professional team. Um, and, and, you know, a lot of the, the players are playing in Champions League, which they need to prepare for as well. So they'll be flying fit going into the game against Finland. Okay, that's good to hear. Just one, one other thing then on uh, England. I mean, you would have been playing there, obviously, when they were in their last major final, which was 2009. They ended up getting hammered in that final by Germany. 6-2 was the full-time score that time. Was the hype around that England team, relatively speaking, was the hype at a, at a similar level and the expectation at a similar level in 2009? Obviously, the, the home thing is a, is a big difference. No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't at all. And there were so many weaknesses in that England team that you kind of knew that Germany were going to pick them apart. They were lucky to get to the final, probably didn't really deserve to be there. Um, But this year is completely different. They deserve to be there. They're playing excellent football. They have maybe one slight weakness in the left back position in Rachel Daly. But again, last night she proved that she is very capable of playing there. So for me, you know, very, very few weaknesses, including the goalkeeper with Mary Earps, who I probably wasn't the biggest fan of at the start of the tournament. But again, she's proved that she deserves to be there and she she can play at that level. She's a top goalkeeper. So going into this final is different. And I feel like the manager as well, she just, she's so confident. You, feel, you nearly feel safe with her. It shows on the pitch. The players are very confident. They trust in her process um, and they all know exactly what their job is and with that kind of information coming as well with extremely good technical and tactical organization uh, they'll be very prepared against Germany and and that's it just makes a huge difference to these players so I, I sense that you've called tonight's semi-final yeah uh, have, you, <laughs> have you changed your tune because I think you were very pro-France early in the tournament no, do you know what? I don't know. It's just this morning. I'm just thinking England, Germany, but I actually don't. I still am going with France. I'm still going with France, but they always let me down. They always let me down. And, you know, they've gone very far farther than they've gone before in, in this tournament. And I've just seen the level just it seems like the players just, you know, they aren't like, uh, for example, Gayoro, fantastic in the first game, has just slightly slipped down throughout the games and I can see that happening. I'm just hoping they've woken up this morning um, because, you know, I want to be right. I want France to win, to be quite honest. Um, and I hope they, they perform like they can because we're always talking about France going out of the tournament, having, you know, a poor performance and not played um, as well as they can. At least if they're not going to go forward, I just hope Germany were just the better side and not the fact that France didn't perform. And who matches up better against England, do you think? Who would England want or...? Well, more, who do you think would actually have a better chance of beating England? Oh, I actually think Germany. <laughs> I know I'm, I'm like totally contradicting myself. Um, I mean, if you were to put money on it, um, I would put money on Germany quicker than I would France. Uh, be just because you don't know how France are going to wake up in the morning and you can't you can't really depend on them I wouldn't entrust my money in them put it that way <laughs> It's mad how that's like been a part of all French sporting culture like you think of the, the men's team like the 82 World Cup the 86 World Cup it wasn't until 98 when they eventually get over that the 94 World yeah. Cup qualifiers like and so maybe the women need to go through that journey and just have that kind of self-confidence that actually they can win this thing and who knows maybe this team is the one to do it yeah, I mean, they have the players, but it's like the men's team, they have the players. It's just, I don't know whether it's an attitude going into a game or, you know, it's they're too individual. 
and um, because they have the players also who can be stand up and be accounted for um but they are quite individual players and that's one thing i'd be worried about the fact that they struggle to play as a team and then all the the crap that's going on off the pitch as well with them rumors that it's not a happy camp they're all arguing and stuff like that that's uh, certainly not going to help is it I wonder has the situation that Paris Saint-Germain somehow managed to find its way to the, the national team as well. Can I just ask you about one thing, right? If Serena Wiegmann is so good, is she so good because she's, she's really good or is she also so good in comparison with what Phil Neville was doing before that? Um, no, it just, uh, I mean, you can't really talk about Phil Neville. You can talk about just a, a manager coming in and being very, very confident and just how they manage the players What's happened is she's gone in there and she has just convinced all the players that she knows exactly what she's doing and they trust her and it's working. It's just a combination of everything, players at the right time and in the right form, you know, it's just a bit of luck as well. Like she has the players, she knows the players she wants. She's been very, very brave in some of her decisions and keeping the team, which I think has helped her. Whereas Phil Neville, didn't he, he changed it a lot and he might have succumbed to pressure a little bit with players and Serena Wiegmann seems to know exactly what player she wants in there and that's not going to change which she has a big for me the biggest decision to make now for her in the final is whether to play Alessia Russo um, or Ellen White and you know even with that Ellen White wasn't playing for City she hasn't played for City hasn't been a regular for City all season Another manager wouldn't have started her. They, they would they would have started someone who's playing and in form. Uh, and Wiegmann didn't do that. And I think it worked out. For, I really like Ellen White. I think she's a great addition to the team. But she has to make a decision now because Alessia Russo is banging on that door. And, you know, I, I tweeted last night about it's not about, oh, let's, you know, it's the best for the team. I don't mind being on the bench. That's not true. That, that's absolutely not true. They want to start... Um, I know Russo, I played with her at Birmingham, um, Birmingham, I played her at Brighton Hove and Albion. She's very, very ambitious. She wants to play. She wants to score. She's not going to want to sit on the bench. She wants to start. And I think she's probably proved that she should. It's a good situation to be in when the competition is so high that somebody scores like an all-time worldie and they're not quite sure of a place in the team. Um, One last question on Phil Neville then. It seems like it was such a weird decision in retrospect to give it to somebody who didn't actually know enough and wasn't properly qualified that they just, for whatever reason, it's like such a low wattage celebrity football person that they gave it to him um, when actually giving the, the job to the right person who comes in and has a, an overarching plan and has experience and understands the opposition really well has been hugely beneficial to them. Yeah, and, you know, I think it was at the, the point in time in women's football where there was a bit of a shift. It was on the way up. There was a, you know, building that community of fans. And I think it was just a case of having someone, you know, in coming from men's football and, you know, he's, a big player played at United. I think that's what they felt they needed just to kind of boost it again even more. And um, I don't think he was the right person for the job, but you know, he did a job. And for me, it kind of gained a little bit more interest because he was there. And um, unfortunately, that's what had to happen. But now I think uh, women's football is a standalone. It can, you know, we don't need to do that anymore. It has to go to jobs, have to be given. It's not 
just fill in quotas. They have to be given to the best person for the job. And we and women's football can afford to do that now because we have gained that um, fan base and it's only going to grow from here. So it sounds like um, you're uh, expecting football to come home and trying to make some peace with that in advance. Is that the correct summation of um, how, how you're feeling? Trying to make peace with it, but... <laughs> Um, I, you know, it's going to be a great thing. The way I look at it, it's a great thing for Ireland as well. And I've always said it, you know, as much as, yes, I want the league in Ireland to improve. And, you know, it's 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 a shame that players have to move abroad. But I've said it since day one. The only way we're going to improve as, as a nation, as a country, is if we push players to play in better leagues, to play with better players so they can improve and then come back to the Irish team like we did when we were 18 years old, we didn't want to, to leave. Uh, we didn't want to leave our families, but we did it because we knew we were going to improve as players. And we did. So for me, it's going to have a knock on effect. It's going to improve uh, football in our country for the national team. And we're going to try and push players to, to play in, in the WSL. One last thing as well. The fact that this is a COVID delayed and the World Cup rolls out straight away next year, it's never actually been better. And in that way, I can totally see how England winning this is going to be a massive surge of interest in the WSL and in our players and hopefully we qualify for the World Cup next year. And in that instance, you can totally see how this is a rolling ball of momentum for Irish football. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And it always has been. There always has been a, a little knock-on effect with us. But now it's it's just massive because... Um, we're we're exploiting women's football and everybody can watch it and you know everybody knows what's going on in Ireland with with the English league which might not have been the case when I was playing so obviously it's going to have a knock-on effect and you know everybody's interested it's like when Wimbledon's on everyone's out playing tennis on the road well I was anyway and um and now it, it, football is, is on the telly everybody can watch it and even at home everybody's talking about it my dad's watching all the games he's complaining about this player that player um so you know of course it's going to have a knock-on effect and the fact that it's uh, rolling on to the world cup the qualifiers in september i think is a great thing so nobody has a chance to relax and, and start watching something else the pre-sale for the women's tickets for ireland finland went on sale yesterday and there's a big push to get tala full for it and a home full stadium if we win that game it doesn't really matter what the, the Finns will do after that so um, hopefully that's the inspiration that everybody takes and they get out and they make a lot of noise in Tala on that night great to have you with us Emma enjoy the rest of the tournament as much as you can cheers thanks thanks guys bye it's, uh, Emma Byrne always great uh, talking to us about the situation last night if you haven't seen uh, the football get on Twitter or wherever you can find the goal and have a look at Alessia Russo's goal it was absolutely sensational a reminder OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day John Duggan good morning to you how are you Darren I want to be well I'm pretty good yeah I'm not as good as Owen. He's he's kind of in the post high crash, but he's like always constant, constantly aware that at any point he can just wrap himself in the warm blanket of an All Ireland. It's a nice feeling, John. What was the party like? It was good. Yeah. Uh, again, I said this yesterday, but I think that people maybe think it was more uh, outrageous than it really was. It is good. Is yeah. the correct uh, tense? Yeah, like, I mean, should I... Have you lost anything? Have you lost your phone or your clothes or anything? Nothing. No, that only happens after demoralising defeats to to Rome. (laughs) The the phone is what I lost there, just to be clear to people at home. Not the clothes. Um, Uh, Was Barry Barry Lennon out with you? Uh, He was, and I'm sure he's still out somewhere. I'm sure he's down below in uh, in Kerry somewhere at the moment. Any any kind of uh, poems or anything for for the internet? 
No, not this time. Not this time. I think he went too viral for his own liking last time. Uh, between Twitter and TikTok, over 100,000 people saw his poetry after the semi-final. So I think um, he decided that it would be best to keep a lower profile. But I do believe there was a bit of poetry recited beside Sam McGuire yesterday afternoon in uh, an establishment in Killarney and I was told not to share the video. Can but you see Can you see now what, like the, even the Kerry Mafia have their own uh, press, mafia. Th- their own press protocols when it comes to this stuff? Yeah, there. It was literally like yeah, you can speak to Barry in a second. It just and three questions, please. Yeah, no, that's it. Time up. Eight years. What was the best bit for you of the whole thing? Oh, of the whole season. Oh, the, the whole day and the whole last couple of days. Um, I, I think just maybe the the, the full time whistle and just kind of everybody congregating in the Cusick stand in kind of the one spot, um, kind of looking around at people that you've kind of like gone to pre-season matches with, you've gone to league matches with and it's kind, of, it's kind of like thinking that actually all those crappy days that you're out are actually culminated in an All-Ireland. Um, not that they're crappy days out because they're actually sometimes far more enjoyable than days out in Croke Park even. So yeah, that's, that's that kind of feeling of, of culmination that all the kind of uh, miles travelled during the year uh, was actually uh, dots along the line on a, on a path to, to winning an All-Ireland. Was it Jason Foley's parents you met at one of those pre-season games? Yeah, the Temple Tui in... Uh, in the second preseason game, like the first preseason game, I remember we couldn't get into because of COVID, and we, it, it was unavailable online. There was a streaming service that just couldn't provide it online. And then the second game was Temple Tui in January. Stunning Where is evening. Temple Tui? T- Tipperary. Okay. And um, yeah, uh, a public can kind of let, let us in the, the the back of the the pub afterwards and, and all that for uh, a chat with the locals. And um, yeah, that night, Shawnee Shea just kind of came onto the pitch looking burlier than ever. He's playing midfield. And Ty Morley was playing sweeper. We kind of noticed it that night for the first time, and we were trying to spot Paddy Talley on the sideline. And uh, those two things would, would turn out to be pretty significant. Those two players would be fairly significant as the year went on. Um, yeah, those—they're always nice. But like but the majority of the years, especially in in recent uh, in recent times, it, it kind of leads to disappointment at the end of the year. So you try and soak in those league nights and and days as much as you possibly can because they're they're good moments too. Jack O'Connor deserves a serious credit. It's interesting. I was behind the goal at the Davin stand end, quite high up. So it's, it, you really see the game from a different perspective when you're seeing the play like this uh, from behind the goal. It's so, actually a great ticket. Yeah, so, so the, the kick out is just so important in Gaelic, Gaelic football. And it was quite a nuanced tactical game. Uh, you really get the sense of the fact that it is possession-based game and teams don't want to give away frees. So their best chance of, of getting something out of it is to get a turnover. But the possession is just so important. And you realise how important the kick-out is. And I felt Kerry did much better in that regard. Um, Shane Walsh, though, it was virtuoso stuff from him. And you just see the angles and you see the, the way he was able to cut balls over the bar. It was, uh, it was fascinating. Don't see as much on the other end, obviously, but you can really see the impact of the Kerry bench. No, and that's why the big screen is important. And that's why replays are really important. You know, yeah. for those tickets where you can't see the other end of the pitch, mm. um, and uh, look, as I said earlier, they're they're getting better at it. They're still not it's still not perfect, um, but uh, yeah, right. Um, sorry, just two things in the paper. <laughs> I hadn't seen this, and then I'm like, what? Uh, Tyson Fury is in talks over Return to the Ring in an exhibition bout. Do you know? Have you seen this? No. Have you seen this? Have you seen this? No. In an exhibition bout, it gives there is there one name in the world that would shock you the most for this? Auntie Joshua? If I was to tell you he's been in studio with us. Oh, the mountain. Half-Thor Bjornsson is going to fight Tyson Fury. Wow. Well, that will be like, wow. Will it be in the Middle East? 
<laughs> it would be a bit of fun, Fury said, and very, very rich. It would be great to get in there in front of, say, 70,000 fans and just make bank. Is it um, boxing or MMA? I don't know. Uh, I guess oh, it couldn't be boxing. Could it? Yeah. Well, like, uh, that was, was that the whole... Po- um, Half Thor was in here talking about... Talking about, uh, like, using a first name basis as if, like, we're buddies or something. He was in here talking about MMA, wasn't he? That was the whole point of the interview. Was well, he said about he McGregor. would fight McGregor. Yeah, he said yeah. he would crush McGregor. Oh, yeah, that was it. Yeah, he'd crush his skull. Could he crush Tyson Fury's skull? Don't think so. No, he's got a stronger stronger bone. Bit of a, bit of a more even fight, wouldn't it? Yeah, certainly size-wise it match up a little bit more. Unless they just like run the gauntlet and it's like kind of like a, a triple threat. They do like one boxing, one weightlifting contest and one MMA fight. See who's the winner of all three. Like a sports stars type thing. That's it, yeah. Um, is, is he still the strongest man in the world? I doubt all? it now. That was a good five, six years ago, was it? Probably stronger five man. Five years ago, yeah. Um, you, you, can't, you can't rest on your laurels as the strongest man. You know, there's always some youngster coming up behind you. Yeah, eating fifteen uh, chicken breasts for breakfast. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the the Telegraph are doing a thing about uh, ten years since the London Olympics and like I, I, I don't the spirit of the London Olympics and all those all that great time when everything was happening. Like, I, I mean, I certainly think the Seoul Olympics, um, the aftermath of that, you know, the dirtiest race in history, but that happened really quickly. So. There was no opportunity for Seoul to build this pretense that it had uh, an incredible legacy. But uh, Lord Coe, as the uh, Telegraph referred to him, says that Ferguson had agreed to take the Team GB football team. Right. Which is a bit like Brian Cody taking that All-Stars team that The Rock was talking yeah, about yesterday. that was a good story. And giving advice to The Rock. Half hung over and... Close him down there. Damien Hayes. Like it's, uh, so I presume the Telegraph are saying, let's remember the greatest moment in the history of our empire. Now they're finally like, uh, how much of a legacy did it really leave? Yeah, but like, did you hear Ian Wright last night after the game in Sheffield? Like he was talking about the legacy of this tournament for yeah. um, football in general. And he says that there's no legacy from this, like what happened with the Olympics. Then what are we doing? And I haven't heard too many people on the BBC kind of like front up and say there was no legacy from the Olympic Games. And I think there's probably uh, maybe a few people waking up to that fact. Yeah, we got a good legacy out of Katie Taylor, obviously. Um, and the other, probably the only legacy over there is West Ham United Football Club as a stadium. Don't they? Yeah, yeah, they they did they did really good out of it. <laughs> they're going to be stadium. The fans hate. a Champions League team in the future on the basis of the stadium that they got. Um, what about Brian Cody, John? You were on air when the news broke. Yeah, it was like a bomb going off. To be honest, you're in the operating theatre then, and uh, we were delighted to be able to have people good enough to give us their time, like John Kiley and Nicky Brennan and Brian Hogan. Um, I was I interviewed Brian Cody in 1999, his first uh, season in charge. Uh, uh, he hit the beat leash and uh, was there for the ringside seat for the whole lot. Um, the, the, the ruthlessness of Kilkenny not only was about Brian Cody's selection, um, it was about the way they would put teams to bed uh, by going for goals. I remember uh, back at the, the, the Limerick game in 07, within 10 minutes they'd kill Limerick the way they beat Tipperary in the four in a row game with those two quick goals. And they were never afraid to go for it. Um, as much as Brian Cody as a fullback uh, in the, of the past was all about intense work rate in terms of defensive play. Um, but to be able to go and, and make three or four teams out of it um, and y- you'd have like legends of Kilkenny that would maybe be a sideline closer uh, before their time. Um, you know, Peter Barry would be the main man and then he wouldn't be. And then Charlie Carter would be the guy and he wouldn't be. And then... Brian Hogan would be the guy, and as you were saying, then he was dropped for the 2014 replay. And I think for a lot of the players, some of them accepted it more than others, but it was just part of the bargain that 
um, the, the only thing that matters here is Kilkenny hurling and winning uh, as a result of that. And uh, if you're good enough to be in the 15, you are. And if you're not, you're not. So um, not all counties were necessarily run that way. Um, but uh, Brian was able to do it, um, even to the extent where it just feels to me that even the way he leaves now, it doesn't seem that he, like all political careers ended failure. It doesn't seem like Kilkenny uh, is a failure at the moment. It seems that they've very, got very, very close to an exceptional Limerick team within two points. So whoever takes over now will have a lot to work with, I think, especially with those younger defenders coming into the team. And a lot of the players that played against Limerick hadn't played in the All-Ireland final before. So what can you say? Um, 11 All-Irelands, 18 Leinsters, 10 leagues. It's not bad. Nicky Brennan was just talking about like <laughs> that the Walsh Cup, he'd take the Walsh Cup really seriously because it's just about winning, winning in, in every way. So... Um, you know, you can make your arguments for Mick O'Dwyer going to Leash and Kildare and doing what he did, or Jim Gavin winning six and uh, five in a row and only losing once. Uh, but but Cody's teams like they won six out of seven. They won six out of seven, and every time they had a setback, they were able to renew. Apart from the last few years, but maybe he didn't have the comparable talent that he did once have. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it's a bit of bit of news this morning. Um, I don't know if you've gone through that story in the front of the Irish Times. Uh, that the RFU facing a case from former players over claims they suffered brain injuries during their careers. These are unnamed players and Dublin-based solicitors, Maguire McClafferty's taking the lawsuit on behalf of those unnamed players. Uh, their actions separate to the one being pursued in the UK. Uh, we also have uh, Tayo Adaramola joining Coventry City. Uh, so he's Republic of Ireland under 21 international, left wing back on a season-long loan from Crystal Palace, uh, the 18-year-old uh, Started his career with St. Kevin's Boys. And I don't know if you know that story about that horse yesterday, the, the winner of the big race, Magic Chicago. The horse box broke down on the way to Galway, but they managed to get there and they won the big race. Horses only bought for just 12 and a half grand by a syndicate in Meath. And won the uh, Colin Quinn BMW Mile under uh, Colin Keane for uh, small trainer Brian Duffy. So the Galway places today, folks, 640. Competitive race, um, maybe fire attack. Might be one for a year or which way if you're looking just for Brian's horse. Won a punch ten last time out. Might have a bit in hand. All right. John, good stuff. Thanks All right, folks. For Thank you. Uh, more from John D. Yeah, from JD on Twitter. And of course, on Saturday afternoon as well on Off the Ball on News Talk. It is 8.52. A reminder, OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Now, we've got a new slot. It's called You Had to Be There, where we're asking journalists to give us five of the greatest moments of individual brilliance that they've seen uh, while they were working or while they were football fans. Uh, that actually makes you forget that you're there for work. And I'm delighted to say we have renowned football journalist Jonathan Wilson with us for the very first one of these. Jonathan, good morning to you. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Um, this is great. You've, you've put together a list which is perfectly in uh, our wheelhouse for those of us of a certain age. And I am delighted as a Villa fan to see that one of my favourite players is on your list here. Um, Mark Bosnich is number one here. Well, I've, I've done them in uh, in chronological order. To be fair, I hadn't, I hadn't actually ranked them one to five. Fair enough. And I should also say I was at that game as a as a Sunderland fan. So it was uh, yeah, Sunderland against Villa in the League Cup in ninety three four. And Villa, of course, went on to win the League Cup that year. Um, Sunderland were uh, second flight side at the time. They'd they'd beaten Leeds in the previous round to you know, within a Premier League club. And I think that first half at Roker Park is as well as I've ever seen Sunderland play. And at halftime, they're two 0 down. Because Bosnich just produced a string of ludicrous saves. Um, so there was, there was a, a Gordon Armstrong header from close range, he tipped over. Then the really great save was a, a looping header from Phil Gray. Uh, so Sonnen had Phil Gray and, and Don Goodman up front. Um, and I think 
think that was the first season they'd really sort of clicked as a partnership. And it, it's looping header. And I, I was I was right in line with it behind it in the full end. And the the, the pace which Bosnich got across his goal and then flung himself up to just tip it over. I, I think that's the, the, the best save I've ever seen in, in the flesh. Uh, absolutely astonishing. Uh, you have a technical ability of a foot movement to, you know, to work out what you need to do and then the athleticism to, to spring up there. Uh, and suddenly end up losing the game 4-1. Uh, but Ron Atkinson, the Villa manager, said afterwards, yeah, there's only one team out there and they end up getting beat. So, yeah, uh, I, I think it can be difficult at times to pick out one individual performance, particularly now when the game is so team-oriented. And I think yeah, that's why goalkeepers kind of fit this sort of pattern quite well. And Bosnich that day was just just absolutely unbeatable. It's funny because like he was actually great that whole season, and um, there's just a period of his career at Villa where he's really sensational at stopping shots, and actually has has a period where he st- he saves lots of penalties and wins penalty shootouts for Villa. Um, and I, I don't know, did it, was he in the top rank of goalkeepers at that time, or was there some kinks in his game that prevented him from being thought of as like absolute top tier? Um, I, I think at that time, because he was still pretty young then, wasn't he? He could only have been early twenties. Um, and I think there's definitely a sense that that he was he was going to go on to great things. Obviously, he did go to Manchester United, um, where yeah, he's one of those those many goalkeepers who, who sort of struggled in the in the post Michael shadow. Um, so yeah, I, I think certainly that mid nineties period, you just said he was in the top sort of five or six in the Premier League or Premiership as it was then, um, with the potential to, to 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 go on to far far greater. And the strange thing, is, I now I now do a bit of work with an Australian TV, and I mentioned this game, and he sort of said nobody ever talks about this game. Nobody nobody saw it. You had to be a Sunderland fan or a Villa fan to watch it, because why would you be watching Sunderland v Villa? Uh, and I'd actually I'd looked up this game on on YouTube uh, a while ago, just as it was, in fact when I first started work, working with Mark Bosnich, just to see if if he, if he had been as good as I remembered it, and I couldn't find it. So I was sort of thinking, was the, the does the footage even exist? But it is there now on YouTube as a ten minute. Uh, highlights package where you see, I mean, that's say from Armstrong, say from Gray. Then there's another one from Gray when when he he gets off his line very quickly. Gray so tries to dink it over, and then Bosnich just sort of thrusts up an arm and blocks it. And so yeah, he was absolutely as good as I remember him being. It's a pretty exciting Aston Villa team. It has uh, peak Tony Daly. It has Daly and Atkinson just like feeling himself as well. And um, it's kind of you know uh, big Ron's flamboyant football, representative of him as a man and a character. Yeah, and well, that first goal, the first Villa goal, which uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, was pretty much the first time Villa had gotten the Sunderland half. Is I think it's Kevin Richardson plays the ball through, and yeah, it's a classic counter attack. But you sort of see the difference in finishing between a really good side and a you know a first division side as was then. That uh, so Atkinson's sort of running on a slight diagonal right to left, and I don't think there's anything particularly wrong with with Alec Chamberlain Sunderland keeper's positioning, but he just sort of slices across it, and, and it's sort of this little sort of it's sort of slightly the outside of his right foot, sort of a little jab, and and Chamberlain, you know, his, his whole weight goes the wrong way, and the ball pings in the bottom corner. And you just sort of think, yeah, okay, that's that's proper finishing. That's that's what 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 we're lacking. So I mean, Atkinson that game was great. Uh, Ray Houghton came for bench and scored very quickly, and and, and obviously, you know, getting towards the end of his career by then, but but helping knit things together in, in midfield. Um, I think Paul McGraw was still there at the back, wasn't he, in in, in that team? So yeah, that that it was a. It was a classic big run side, wasn't it? it yeah, was, totally. It was flamboyant, great to watch, but maybe lacking consistency. You, you, you need to win the biggest prizes. Paul McGrath and Steve Staunton, possibly? He's definitely no. on the books. I'm not sure he's playing that game. 
Maybe. Yeah, I, I can't remember that. I, I definitely, I'm, I'm pretty sure McGraw was playing against Phil Gray. It looks like Earl Barrett's at left back for whatever reason. Um, so uh, you've also got Niall Quinn, number two on the list. Yeah, well, <laughs> partly appealing to the audience, but uh, no, I, mean, I, so I remember when Sunderland signed Niall Quinn um, and I think his debut was away against Nottingham Forest, which was the first away game of the Premier League season in 96-7. And he was brilliant that day and Sunderland won 4-1. I think they might even have been four 0 up at half time, um, and then I, th- I think he played sort of eight league games and then got his knee injury. And I, I like a lot of Sunderland fans. I mean, I, I, the, the game I'm talking about is is when Sunderland beat Chelsea four one. I was actually working at that game. Um, it was one of my, my first games as a as a journalist. Um, but I, I was I was at that Forest game as a fan. Uh, but I, I remember sort of pretty quickly a couple of months into that that first season. Um, of 96-7, becoming pretty disillusioned and thinking, oh, God, this guy's so slow. Why have we signed him? You know, he's he's clearly, whatever he had at, at City, he's, he's lost. And, and, you know, it took him a couple of years to, to get that properly diagnosed and sorted out. And then I was away at university, so I wasn't I wasn't watching Sunderland Live that often. And started to hear from mates who were going that, actually, this guy's really good. And I couldn't quite sort of believe it. And I, rem- I remember sort of... Um, him, him, him scoring in an away defeat and sort of thinking, oh God, that's going to keep him in the side another half dozen games. That's that's not what we wanted. And then I went to to see Sunderland away at QPR and he scored one and had two disallowed and was sensational. And I was sort of like, okay, that's that's the play he, he, yeah, he should have been with if he hadn't had the knee injury. And then, uh, the, yeah, those those two, 97-8, 98-9, the first two seasons when he was together with, with Kevin Phillips, they were yeah, brilliant together. Uh, 98-9, Phillips was actually injured for a lot of the season, which people forget, and, and Quinn and Michael Bridges and Danny Dicchio carried it. And then that first season up in the Premier League, um, Sunderland got beat 4-0 at Stamford Bridge on the opening day. And then there's this game beginning of December uh, when Quinn absolutely destroys Marcel Desailly. And, and that was the first game. I think Sunderland were third uh, off the back of that win. But this, that was the first game where I sort of thought, Actually, maybe they are, they genuinely are quite good. They're not just sort of riding this euphoric wave. And the, I mean, the other astonishing thing about, about that game was the middle of midfield. They had Eric Wah, a sort of unheard of French midfielder, and Paul Thurlwell, a local kid. That they, they had, you know, um, Kevin Ball was out. Uh, yeah, the, the 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 whole of a normal midfield. Uh, I think Stefan Schwartz must have been out as well. The whole whole of that central midfield. Uh, Alex Ray wasn't there. Was was missing. And so, you know, very low expectations. And Sunderland took the lead um, in, I think, I think, the second minute. And that first half, they absolutely destroyed Chelsea. Uh, and, 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 yeah, Desai, he, he played the next week, so he wasn't injured, but he was substituted at half-time because he just couldn't handle Quinn. Why was he so good? What Was it uh, goal scoring? Was it assisting? Was it just control of the ball? What was it? Well, he, he, he scored twice. And I, th- I think he, he set up the other two. So he got he got a goal after two minutes, which is Eric Wah, a, a totally uncharacteristic sort of dribble through the middle and squared it, and Quinn pokes it in. But it, it was his movement. Um, the, the I mean, yeah, I, th- I think it was Frank LeBeouf playing alongside Desai. So you'd sort of assume our oh, Quinn would 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 have a go at LeBeouf as being the, the the less physically imposing, but he didn't. He picked on Desai. Uh, so it was his movement dragging him out of position. It was, I think, the thing with Quinn that people who didn't watch him regularly perhaps don't don't quite appreciate is how good his chest control and his first touch was. 
So he, he didn't have much pace. That that's the one criticism. But you know, a player of that size is never going to have much pace. Um, so I think it's the the third goal is a ball in so a diagonal ball in from the right that he takes down at the back post. And it's a little side for volley. And he scored a load of goals like that. It was a goal he scored in the League Cup against Luton. This brilliant sort of lob volley having taken on his chest. And it could have been this this brilliant chest control control volley. And Ed Tahui makes a very good save and, and, and Phillips follows it in. Um, then then he gets the fourth, which is this uh, it's a corner, comes across the back post. It sort of missed everybody. And it's a very controlled volley into the far post. He doesn't just lash it. He, he places this volley. And, and so, you know, it was a day when I guess he knew physically he was overmanning the, the, the guy he was up against, but also all of that technical ability was also right at the highest level. And there's a moment in the second half, which again, I haven't been able to find uh, footage of, but I, I'm pretty sure it happened. I mean, I, I found my notes on that day where I've written it down, that Sutherland got a throw on the right and Quinn and Phillips pass the ball to each other twice. And then I think it's Quinn has hits the volley. So the ball doesn't touch the ground from this throw-in to Quinn hitting the volley and it hits the outside of the post. And if that had gone in, it would have been one of the greatest of all goals. And I think between them, Quinn and Phillips scored something like 149 goals over those three seasons, which yeah, if you strike bang, to be banging in 50 between them each season on average is, is incredible. Does the fact that there is no video footage make this even more special, Jonathan, that you can be like, I was there and you'll never get to see it? <laughs> Well, but part, part of me thinks, have I just made it up? Has my brain sort of somehow conjured that? I'm very glad I've still got the, the, the notes I took at the time. Uh, and those were in the days when you did take handwritten notes. You weren't just like, knocking it all down on your laptop. Um, but yes, it does. That, that, that In my head, it was this incredibly pure bit of movement. And I'm sure in reality, it was sort of slightly scruffier than that. Um, but but yeah, the, the it, and you sort of the, the third goal as well, you sort of think of the goal it could have been if Ed who hadn't made that save. And I remember it being you know, a real sort of scrambling, diving save. You only just get fingertips to it and obviously can't get enough power on the save to push it away. But you know, that, that could have been a, a really stunning, stunning goal, which, as I say, Quinn's, Quinn's got a load of those volleys that I, th- I think he probably doesn't quite get credit for. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I think probably because of his involvement in football afterwards, we've forgotten uh, just what a great footballer he was, especially here because you know he's a central figure in Saipan and all that too. But anyway, John Kennedy is number three. This is, um, this is unheralded for a lot of people. Barcelona nil, Celtic nil in the UEFA Cup, fourth round, second leg in 2004. What was so good about John Kennedy's performance? I think it's just it was so unexpected. So to, to set the scene, Celtic had obviously reached the UEFA Cup final in 2003, lost to Jose Mourinho's Porto, and, and and following Celtic, or, you know, covering Celtic at that time was was a was a brilliant thing. You know, the 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 atmosphere at Parkhead was always great. That was you know, Martin O'Neill's team, uh, really exciting, attacking, dynamic football. Uh, yeah, Celtic away fans obviously were always very very noisy as well. And so I'd been at the first leg and there'd been there'd been some problem with my accreditation. So I ended up uh, stuck behind the goal just, just with the fans, uh, which is never ideal when you're balancing a laptop on your knee. But um, uh, Celtic, uh, were, I can't remember when they get the goal, but anyway, the, the, the second half, um, Thiago Motta is sent off. And as he goes off, I'm trying to work out how Barcelona, Barcelona are rearranging themselves. And... This is what I don't know, 10, 15 minutes in the second half. And I'm sort of going around, I think there's only nine players there. I can't wait. And then going, yeah, only nine. So I said to the bloke next to us, can, sorry, can you just count the Barcelona players? Tell me how many there are. And he's, ah, oh, there's only nine. Wonder what's going on. 
So I, I, I rang a, a friend in the press box and said, how come Barcelona have got nine men? And he went, oh, uh, Rab Douglas and uh, Saviola were sent off at half time for, for fighting in the tunnel. And because Celtic were yeah, defending the other end, we hadn't realised that um, uh, Marshall was, was on for, for Douglas and Celtic were also down to 10 before the sending off. So it was 9v10 in the second half. Celtic win it 1-0. Go to Barcelona. So they've, they've got uh, Marshall in goal. He was a kid at the time. So I, I could have picked him. I didn't want to pick two keepers. And uh, they end up, I think Boba Baldo was, was suspended as well. So John Kennedy comes in as an 18-year-old. And the first 20 minutes of this game, Barcelona absolutely battered them. And Marshall makes a couple of really good saves. But you, you, you realise that about halfway through the first half, that Barcelona is starting to lose hope. And one of the reasons for that is that Kennedy has totally taken Ronaldinho out of the game. And there's one tackle in particular, I remember, midway through the first half, where it looks like Ronaldinho's got past him and he just stretches out a leg and just clips the ball away. And and then from then on, it was as if that tackle gave him confidence. And his performance from then was incredibly mature. And I remember watching that. And Celtic end up holding that pretty comfortably once they'd survive that, that initial storm, hold that pretty comfortably for a nil-nil to, to go through. And I remember thinking, right, Marshall and Kennedy, that these two kids are both brilliant and they're both going to go on to have great careers. And unfortunately, Kennedy got crocked by, by the Romanian, Yolganea, and, and was never really the same again. But he did have that one performance as an 18-year-old in the Camp Nou where he was absolutely out of this world and Mark Ronaldinho out the game. Did you know that there is a, a footballer currently playing for a Fluminense called John Kennedy? Uh, he was born in the early 2000s, so potentially named after that moment where, uh, you know, <laughs> the temporary Fluminense star was marked out of it. I mean, I, I, I think there's maybe a more famous John Kennedy he might be named after, but uh, <laughs> I, I'd love to believe that's true. <laughs> We'll we'll do some digging and try and find out. Uh, next on our list is uh, Andre Ayew for Ghana against Tunisia in the Cup of Nations in 2012. Yeah, so um, I remember interviewing Ayew's father, Abedi Pele, uh, in in Ghana when the Cup of Nations was there in 2008, and he was talking about his two kids and and, and how good they were and how excited he was by them. And 2010 in Angola. That Ghana side, really good young side. I mean, Samuel Inkum, uh, Agiman Badu, Kwadu Asamoa, Asamoa Jan, really good side, got to the final, uh, lost to, to that very good Egypt team. And so there was sort of high, high expectations of them uh, in Equatorial and Gabon uh, in 2012. And they, they, they sort of struggled slightly to get going in the group stage and they played Tunisia in the quarterfinal. And Tunisia... I mean, particularly back then, were, were always a, a very sort of very organised, very hard to play against. Um, there'd always be all kinds of chicanery going on. Um, they, they were a hard team to love, whereas that Ghana had you know a lot of a lot of life about them. And uh, Ghana take the lead early on, uh, a corner that's flicked on, and John Mensah, who actually went on to play for Sunderland, scores with a back post header. Uh, Tunisia then against the one to play equalised just for half time uh, through Saba Khalifa. And then Ghana absolutely battered them. And it's Ayu leading everything. Everything is going through him. And he's sort of playing as a second striker just behind Jan. And and well, this goes back to what I was saying you know, when I was talking about Bosnich, that I think in modern football, it's increasingly hard to pick out an individual. So you think of, say, David Beckham's performance against Greece in, in 2001. And that was a stunning individual performance. But it's actually a sign that everything is broken down, that one player is having to take everything on. 
And, and actually, I think that was detrimental to both Beckham and England in the longer term because Beckham kept trying to do that. And there's only certain very limited circumstances in which one player running everywhere works. I think the slight exception to that is if you're playing as a second striker and your midfield sits quite deep, you, you, you can leave your post a bit more and go hunting the ball. And now you just kept going back, picking up the ball, running with it, uh, kept getting fouled. He took an absolute battle in that game. Um, and Tunisia were getting deeper and deeper. They take it to extra time. You sort of, you're thinking, well, I've seen this before. Tunisia will nick something from a set play or they'll they'll uh, they'll, they'll win it on penalties. That's, that's, that's what Tunisia kept on doing. Um, and Ayu just keeps going, keeps going. Uh, Abdenur, the centre-back, gets sent off for Tunisia uh, early in the second half of extra time. I, I think for a foul on Ayu. And then a couple of minutes after that, it's as if that, that moment has totally discombobulated Tunisia. There's a very simple ball in from the right. Matluti, the, the Tunisia keeper, drops it. And the ball just drops to Ayu, I don't know, uh, four yards out, quite a narrow angle. And you can almost see the look of surprise and panic on his face that he's got this chance. Having he absolutely run himself into the ground for the previous hour, but he's got enough technical ability to just sort of poke that over the line. And uh, and Ghana win it win it two one, but then he he probably I think had was worn out by that and you know he'd taken such a kicking um, that in in the semi final against Zambia he you know he just he just wasn't there and Zambia ended up winning it and and going on you know one of the great Cups of Nations stories that of them beating Cote d'Ivoire in the final in in Libreville nineteen years after the air crash but that performance from from Ayi in uh, in Franceville in the quarter final it was just you know the the physical courage of it, the, the 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 kicking he took and then just kept going back. Absolutely remorseless and relentless. Perfect. The last one that we have is Romelu Lukaku. Yeah, he's a player who I have to say I don't really understand anymore. I, I, I thought I'd I thought I got him. I thought I kind of uh I'd seen enough of him into him with Belgium to sort of think, yeah, he he actually is a really great player and what happened to Manchester United was Manchester United's fault. And then you saw him at Chelsea last season and, and I, I'm, I'm back to being baffled again. But Lukaku, when he's on song, I think is an incredibly potent forward, incredible range of abilities. And this game against Brazil in the quarterfinal of the World Cup, which was in Kazan, I'd been based in Kazan for most of the tournament. I was very fortunate that I got a load of great games. So I saw Germany go out. Uh, I saw Poland go out. I saw Argentina go out. And then I saw Brazil go out this night. And... Uh, I'd, I'd seen Brazil. I'd, I'd, I'd been at the game in Samara when they beat Mexico in the last 16. You thought, oh yeah, they're, they're, they're really good. They're the team to beat in this tournament. And the, the team lineups come in and looking at the Belgium team, thinking, okay, Lukaku's playing through the middle. Oh, where's De Bruyne playing? It doesn't quite make sense. Then they line up and you realize, no, Lukaku's playing wide right and De Bruyne's playing as a as a, as a false nine. You thought, oh, how, how's that going to work? And you realize that, that Martinez had got it absolutely right. That it, it's, it totally threw through Brazil, Lukaku's movement, pulling out to that right side, creating space was perfect. Uh, they Belgium really sort of, uh, they, they focused on Brazilian left side, which you'd think would be a strength because they had Neymar and they had Coutinho down that side and, and Marcelo. Um, but actually by by attacking them down that side, they 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 really, really exposed how, how weak Brazil were defensively on that side. And, and Lukaku was a huge part of that. Um, and his link up with with De Bruyne, uh, yeah, kept on coming inside and sort of inside right role. And Brazil just didn't know how to pick him up. And I thought, for a player who's so physically imposing, who's so technically good, who's so good at scoring goals, 
to put in a sort of self-sacrificing performance like that was all about his movement. I, I thought that that suggests a player of, of profound tactical intelligence and somebody who's prepared to sacrifice himself absolutely to the to the greater good. Uh, and I assumed he'd do that at Chelsea, and it, it, he didn't. Um, you know, I thought Mason Mount could do what, what De Bruyne had done done that day, and and that didn't quite work out. But that 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 one day. His link up with De Bruyne, I thought, was absolutely sensational. Oh, class. That's um, exactly what we were looking for this morning, Jonathan. Thanks a million for doing all that for us. Cheers. Cheers. No worries. Thank you. It's uh, Jonathan Wilson there with our inaugural episode of You Had to Be There. And um, yeah, we, uh, we're it's going to be you, hard beaten. You're going to get you to do your list, obviously. That's um, that's a very, very strong list. We're actually kind of... Uh, it's like, I mean... I would expect somebody who has uh, covered football for a long time not Jonathan but for somebody to say you know like Maradona or something like that or Messi they did a few times but that was uh, no that's, that's a sensational list yeah. the Nile Quinn stuff is class as well uh, so named after JFK not um, not Celtics John Kennedy we think it's disappointing there you go OTBM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day here's what we've got on OTB Sports Radio today at one o'clock it's OTB Gold Dr Harry Edwards Koi gig from three. Tyrone GA's golden days at four. Owen will be tuned to that specifically. OTB Gold is Jason Sherlock talking about the JO years and the show is live tonight from seven. You can follow off the ball across all our social channels. Subscribe to our YouTube. Make sure you download the OTB Sports app. After the break, we're live with Limerick Seamus Hickey as we continue to hear from the hurlers who played against Brian Cody's Kilkenny sides down through the years. During the break, you're going to hear a clip from the latest episode of Koi Gig as Kathleen McNamee and Alana Canan preview tonight's Euro 2022 semi-final between Germany and France with the winner facing England at Wembley on Sunday. Koi Gig's back tomorrow with full semi-final reaction as well as a bumper end of tournament chat next week. The Koi Gig pod on OTB Sports is in association with Cadbury FC, official snack partner to the Republic of Ireland women's national team. I would probably tip Germany just because Mm. I think they've been the most consistent and I think they've it's like you said before they've kind of gone through all this without that much faff or like any sort of thing around them and every match of theirs that I've watched I've never felt like they were on the edge or like they were kind of close to losing you always felt confident that they were going to get there eventually like it might take them until 60 70 minutes to score but you knew they would score and they'll score one or two and it'll be safe enough. And even the sort of form that Alex Pop has been in for, which yeah. is, is their first ever Euros? Am I, I think. Yeah, Alex. it is. Yeah, because she had the injury the last one. Yeah. And I'm like, that's so mental for a player of her caliber. This is her first Euros. But um, I don't know. They just, they've been so steady in everything that they've done. And yeah. I feel like France hasn't been entirely. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. 17 minutes past nine. We've been hearing this week from loads of the hurlers who played under Brian Cody. Uh, yesterday, we had Dermot the Rock Sullivan on talking. He's a great story about the all-star trip to Argentina, about where Cody gave him a little bit of advice after he was getting the runaround from Damien Hayes. Uh, to get more about what it was actually like to come up against his teams, I'm delighted to say we're joined by Seamus Hickey. Seamus, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Morning, Ger. Morning, guys. Um... Talk to us about Cody and what kind of an impact he had on the careers of the players who came up against him. Because obviously, I think maybe by the time you go up against him for the first time, his legend is beginning to be burnished. We're beginning to understand the force of personality and power because he's he's basically onto his second team already by that stage. He's, he's taken an Ireland winning team. He's kicked most of them out and he's brought through a crop of youngsters who it turned out were absolutely sensational. So what, what was your experience of it like? So I grew up um, basically and was formed uh, in underage hurling while he was getting a hurling manager. Um, 
and you know when I got to the All Ireland Minor Hurling Final in 2005, um, it was Cork and Kilkenny uh, were, were dueling it out, and it was it was uh, I got onto the senior panel in 06 when uh, when it was Cork were going for three in a row, uh, and it was Kilkenny that was stopping them, uh, and it was. I know it was at the time it was the likes of a Donald O'Grady or a John Allen uh, and the Cork current personalities that were as equally formative uh, to the, the kind of the environment that I came into. But what I was absolutely sure of was in Kilkenny. Um, a just I suppose what stood out to me about Kilkenny was their physicality. They were all you know, especially the likes of you know. I was a huge fan of Noel Hickey as a player. I was a huge fan of Peter, of Peter Barry, etc. Back and you know these were the kind of guys that I was looking up to. It was all defenders, really, um, and, and you know I was just massively impressed with their their physicality, their ability to hurl, um, and it was just a great time, I suppose I'd say for hurling at the time. But you know, when I came in uh, in '06, uh, we had you know we had a kind of a half decent run, got to an honor quarter final, lost to Cork. Uh, but the following year, then we managed to get to, to all and find against Kilkenny. Uh, and it was that team, then obviously it was the, the super team uh, that we ran up against. And we weren't really aware of how good they were at the time. Uh, so it was it was a bit of a, you know, we, we felt we felt we had a chance. Um, so it was one of those things where, um, you know, what stood out to me and, and one of the main experiences about that weekend um, for me was... Uh, it was Kilkenny had exceptional talent. Uh, their intensity and you say their their aggression in the game was second to none. It was unparalleled, and it was one of those things where you know I, I would have taken out of that for years to come. But it was if you can't meet the intensity stakes and the physicality stakes at the very beginning, well then you're not in the game to win a hurling game. Uh, you're not in the game to match them in skill or to to beat them on the scoreboard. You, you just have to make you have to match. Uh, that physicality and intensity at the beginning, but on the on the the Sunday of the All Ireland 2007, I was in the corner expecting to be marking uh, Richie Power, and I'd set myself up for it during the week, and I'd I'd watch video of Richie Power, and I was expecting him to be my my job, um, and Eddie Brennan arrived into my corner, um, and Henry Shefflin arrived in full forward and Stephen Lucy, and. You know, we had Richie Power out centre forward. We had uh, a number of changes at the beginning that we had to adapt to. Now, we had played the Watford team that year in the All Ireland semi final where the six Watford forwards never had a position. <laughs> and John Milan could turn up anywhere. Uh, Paul Flynn could turn up anywhere. Um, you know, we had played that. But it, it was it was something completely different. Um, you know, again, Shefflin at the edge of the square was, was unnerving. Um, and you know the likes of Eddie Brady then coming into my corner. Um, again, you know, I, gosh, the first ten minutes of that game were an absolute nightmare of a start. Um, and it was just it, it, to, to me afterwards, and it stood out. And it was a tough learning experience for me as a hurler. But it was just how and it, how the the matchups for Kenny were was key. How Cody found the matchups, um, and it was in right the way through the Galway games they played later on. And the Tipperary games, when they used to move players around in Lark Corbett, when they used um, when they used to put their forwards in different configurations again against uh, against Tipperary six, six backs, I always found that they were looking for uh, an opportunity to to exploit uh, not necessarily a weakness, but definitely a strength of theirs. 
Um, so it, it was it was one of the massive learning experiences that I had early days, and that was that was 07. And then they cast a shadow uh, over over my I suppose my career because uh, we met them so often. It was a lot of times at the end of our year. <laughs> so you know, it was it was 07. It was 012. It was 12. It was 14. It was 17. Um, and and every time, um, I suppose, in we, we were always kind of respected by Kilkenny, to be fair, as giving them a game uh, in a time when you know a lot of teams weren't giving them a game. Uh, and all, what I always distinctly remember about Cody was his after-game uh, comments. So he used to always come in after games. And what always stood out to me about his personality was he was incredibly intense and competitive uh, on the sideline and uh, anything to do around the game. As soon as the game was over, he was like um, he was like a disciple of the game. He was he was a hurling uh, he was a hurling fan uh, and a hurling man first. And every time he used to come into our dressing room, and lots of different managers have come into our dressing rooms at different times, uh, obviously after after games. But uh, he was incredibly sincere. Uh, now, 07, I remember very little because <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't in the mind frame to take in much in. But uh, 2012, we met him in the Northern quarterfinal in Thurles. And uh, we were starting to get better again after an absolute nightmare of a, of a time in, in 2010. And we were starting to build back up. Um, and 2013, then we actually went down to, 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 to get to an Ireland semi-final again. But um, in, four, in, in 12, he came into our dressing room. And in a very sincere uh, and absence of any patronising tone at all, he just he told us that, that hurling needed Limerick. And, and it just uh, it needed Limerick strong. It needed Limerick uh, at the top table with the with the other you know, the Tipperaries, the Corks, the Kennys, um, because it was good for the game. And I, you know, I don't think for a second he wanted Limerick to beat Kenny, uh, but he wanted them strong, and he and he wanted, you know, the the work that we were doing uh, to continue. And that, you know, he he it was it was one of those days he, he could actually feel like he was giving you the team talk. Um, it was absolutely. It was like it was like he was part of your, your your management team at times, um, because it wasn't it wasn't that dissimilar at all in 2014 when we we ran them so close in the All Ireland semi final and, and arguably we should have we should have beaten them. Uh, we've you know possibly had to you know probably played better on the day but conceded two goals at the worst possible times at the end of the ha- at either half. So I remember he just he he, he fiercely. He fiercely encouraged and kind of endorsed the the work we were doing in Limerick, uh, and that actually left a, a very very long and lasting mark on me, uh, going uh, as I played. But it was also kind of if you're talking about the effects that he had in his players, I met Henry Shefflin after the 2014 All Ireland semi final, and when Henry had come on, now uh, he came on as a sub. It was one of his last years. And he was greeted with about six shoulders from our, our six backs. Everybody was encouraged to, to give Henry a few lumps. Uh, but Henry had been a consummate competitor. Um, you know, I, I met him the week after the game and I was I was in agony. You know, I, we'd come so far and we were waiting to make a breakthrough. And it was again a black and amber journey, the jersey that had stopped us. Um, and I was saying, oh, yeah, I suppose, you know, we did well. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I suppose, yeah, yeah. He goes... But Donald Grady should have been sent off. He should have been. He should have been. He'd have been out to fourteen men, and 
Uh, and there was two frees in the first half they weren't given. I was like, gee, you're back in. I was like, what? The? Was like, he won the game. I, I'm, I'm dying here. Uh, give me some bit of sympathy or, or something. Uh, but it, to me, that was that was a kind of a hallmark of the man that was above him. It was just that that sheer intensity of of competition. And uh, imagine, and I met him. imagine what Sorry. it would have been like if you'd beaten him. I well, to be honest, I don't think he would talk to me about it. But uh, we, we, on a serious note, it, it was it was it was telling. And and I kind of always saw a lot of parallels between Sheffield as a leader and, and Cody as a leader. Um, I, I I kind of thought there were two sides of the same coin, really. Um, but I met I met Cody in in Austin, uh, Texas, on the All Star trip. Then after that, um, similar to Dermot. But again, just uh, Brian was there with, with his with his lovely wife, and uh, just an absolute gentleman. Um, and again, and it's it's hard it's hard to keep saying this, but would have it sounding uh, uh, insincere or patronising. But he genuinely was. He was like, "You're you're doing great things," and, and you know, keep knocking on the door, and the door will open. And um, you know, I hugely admired him, and uh, to kind of. You know, I, I aspired to have his respect and, and a lot of Kilkenny or, or Limerick hurlers, you know, we just really wanted, you know, to be respected and, and to be a genuine threat <laughs> in the competition uh, and ultimately then to try and break through. But um, it was that kind of thing where uh, you knew that there was there was three certainties in life at that stage. Uh, it was it was death, taxes and, and Kilkenny waiting in an All-Ireland semi-final. So it was uh, it was. It was a tough time to be to be uh, playing against him. Did he try to give you any coaching nuggets in that trip to Austin? At that trip, no, because it was actually there was a good share of Kenny boys around me at the time because um, they had won fifteen. So it was the the, the two year. It was fourteen fifteen that went, and uh, so they. I suppose uh, that year uh, in Austin, he was over our team uh, in the in the. Uh, for the the game, so the the two managers uh, um, himself and um, I can't remember who was the second one. Jamie Mac. Liam uh, Sheedy, maybe? Oh, he was gone. No, it, it wasn't Liam. It wasn't him because he had stepped away. But uh, uh, yeah, Brian was over our team. He goes, "Let's we're here. We might as well win this game." <laughs> and uh, it was uh, it was one of those things where I always thought the the All Star game was a was was a, a lost opportunity to play a really good hurling in a place where, where it's not seen that often. Uh, I wasn't, I, I was one of the few people who thought that. Uh, so, but Cody was of this, he was basically, we're here representing the game. Let's, let's give the game as good as we can give. Um, and he, uh, yeah, no, it was funny. He, he put me, sent, he put me cornerback um, on, um, I think it was Colin Finley. And he told me about Colin and it was basically like, uh, you got to get out in front of him. You're not going to win. You're not going to. You're you're not going to beat him in a foot race. And I was like, thanks, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> Breaking news: Colin Fenley yeah, super fast. Was, yeah, yeah. He was like, uh, yeah, Colin's fast. I was like, genie, mate. This is this is this is how you're winning all Ireland. It's great. So, but it was it genuinely it was a, it was a great experience and like that, just that desire to to have his respect was kind of a driving force for me um, because uh, you, you know he was. To me, he was one. He was one of the the greats of the game, uh, and that was that was early on in, in my career. I, I would have can seen I, that. Can I just go back to two thousand and seven? I, I presume it's difficult, or maybe it's not difficult for you to talk about now because you have an All Ireland medal at the end of your career, and you make a great comeback from that to end up being an All Star and your Young Hurler of the Year that year. But um, after ten minutes, it's two three to no score, and the first goal and the second goal come 
in about a 45 second period it feels like um, the first one is Eddie Brennan just getting out yeah. in front of you going around you and then basically passing the ball to the net with a bit of pace and the second one is just a massive long ball into Henry who's one on one and it looks like he's throwing the ball into the net but obviously his stick work is so fast that the camera barely catches mm-hmm. it and he's just tapping it in and it's literally game over at that stage right like did you feel like you could come back so the, the first one so I was a bit shell-shocked after the first one So I, and, and corner forwards have scored goals before like it's it's one of those things where you, you kind of recover from them, but um, it was just uh, uh, I suppose for me it was the uh, especially Eddie so I was roughed up in the corner I was um, uh, you know I was physically dominated um, in, in, in the corner and sort of the first few balls that came in you know before the ball even got there I was hit uh, the ball got there I tried to compete and I lost the competition uh, but the, the 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 goal was from a sideline ball where I thought I was actually in decent position I was goal side uh, and I thought it was fine um, but it was I think pretty, Eddie caught it on the turn turned and, and kept running and just again like you said he was he was close enough then at that stage where he could actually just pick his spot and touch it in um, but it, the, the, the Henry goal was like after the, the Eddie goal, we said, okay, fair enough, you know, this is a shit start. We can go home. But uh, after the, the Henry goal, it was like, oh dear, okay, this is this is our nightmares. Um, and it was my, it, I suppose, what who would have felt it most was myself and Stephen Lucy. Uh, we were kind of, you know, we'd have been fairly solid uh, t- together, but we were both rattled uh, after it. And so, you know, the rest of the team actually played exceptionally well. And it's very, very difficult to, to see that in hindsight. But that, that uh, that team, the, like Ollie Moore, had an exceptional game that year. That day, um, you know, we did have good performances. Mike Fitzgerald played well in the wing. Uh, we we had good performances around the field. Brian Geary played very well centre back. Um, it's just, uh, I suppose, the the start was so hard to recover from. Uh, and we lost by we lost by six points in the end, which was actually the closest anybody got to them in the four year run. Yeah, and, and you're nine down after ten minutes. So um, you're nineteen at that stage, are you? Maybe twenty, just turned. Uh, yeah, I was 19 in, 19 in, in 07. So essentially, the manager's like, let's pick on the young guy. Eddie Brennan, you get in there and you, you see what he's made of. And like, it is a baptism of fire. Did the fact that you got Young Herder of the Year help to ease the pain a little bit to give you the confidence to come back from that? Because a lot of people get brutalised in the order of fun like that and are like, okay, thanks very much. I've had enough now. Yeah, well, to be fair, it, it, what it did was it told me that I was probably too nice a cornerback. Uh, and the players I had marked that year, Owen Kelly, uh, John Milan, and you know who was oh, and in Seamus Butler for for Tipperary as well. Uh, in the three games we played against them, I, I was I was probably just too nice, uh, and that, that that was a good lesson. Um, but what I realised was playing cornerback, and, and I I looked at the likes of Jackie Tyrrell, um, and I looked at the likes of uh, of Kavanagh in the corner for Kenny, and I was there going, okay, you know there. They're the gold standard, um, you know. And I was looking at Brian Murphy and Cork as well. Like they weren't, uh, they weren't this, the, the the nicest guys in the field, and that's what I kind of had to talk, teach me. And like Eddie Brennan afterwards, uh, you know, like I never forget it at the All Stars um, when I went up there, and I was feeling, you know, again, you were probably still, you know, feeling even any award you get is a bit, you feel a bit of a fraud, like. But uh, you go up there. And it was the Kenny boys were the first ones to shake my hand when I got up to the to the seats uh, to, when you get your award. And it was, you know, that was that left a last, last impression on me. And when you actually socialise with the Kenny boys afterwards, you realise that, um, 
you know they're they're incredibly good at what they do but there's there's really good stuff in them and that they were really really sound men uh when they cut loose they cut loose uh and they were they were they were gents and that was it was kind of part of the culture that was built in Kilkenny I thought it was that you know you know there was there was this kind of uh, this kind of patriot way uh, in Kilkenny, if you understand my, my meaning from the American football side of things, uh, you know, you were expected to, to to carry the 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 Kilkenny brand with you, and, and you were expected to to represent it well. Um, and I thought that was I thought that was that was, that was evident, and it was it was Eddie it was Eddie who shook my hand the first uh, time up there that day, uh, and uh, it was one of those things where you know it was you lost on the day and, and you, you got on with it. Yeah, yeah. No, it turns out they're all good fellas and uh, they're all like deep thinkers on the game and deeply understand how a game should be won and lost. It made it very difficult to hate them, uh, I'll be honest, uh, which, you know, it didn't help me over the years, but uh, it, they were exactly that. Uh, they just didn't talk in, in the media that often. They didn't, they weren't um, as notable around the place until a lot of them retired and then, you know, realised, oh, gee, there's actually an awful lot more to all these guys. And lucky enough, I think that we're getting to understand that about the Limerick lads now in the middle of us, that there are really great characters there and their stories are really interesting. And I don't know if that's a conscious effort that they're making for that or think, if it just automatically I, happened. I think you'll find, I think you'll find a lot of, even with Joe Schmidt's time in, in, in the Iron Rugby setup, you, you just have this, you're, you're encouraged to keep everything about the, the game and anything that is peripheral that is not contributing to you being good at the game isn't isn't essential it's not necessary and, and don't put a whole pile of time into it um you know it was it's it just it, you need to, you need to focus on, on on the one thing and i think it was uh it was lebron james i think it was a, in, in all the different uh activities that he goes on between advertising between movies i mean he goes remember at the end of it all it's it's the one thing that matters and the one thing is is, is the game and and I think I think that's kind of frustrating as well at times for for, for for media and things like that when you do know that guys have great personality and they're not they don't kind of give or show a lot of themselves uh, while they're in it but you know I think the great ones um, they they save all or you know ninety percent ninety five percent of their energy for for their craft um, and you know it, it, I don't especially in Limerick we were never banned from talking to the media goodness knows. Uh, we were we were given great freedom, but it's just it's not the one thing, and the one thing is 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 hurling, and the one thing is winning yeah. all Ireland. And I felt like that looking in at Kilkenny. Yeah, hundred percent. Seamus, great stuff. That was brilliant. Thanks a million for sharing that with us. Cheers. Thanks, thanks guys. It's uh, Seamus Hickey again. Always really interesting when it comes to hearing about that stuff and and what the response was like uh, inside opposition camps as well. Um, that Eddie Brennan performance in that All Ireland final is one of the signature moments in that run as well but um, the recovery that he makes from it for the rest of his career which obviously ends up with an All-Ireland medal at the start of the second great team that we're going to talk about really when it comes to like hurling in the colour TV era it's like Limerick and Kilkenny yeah very, could have got his get, wish getting very close to it he did he did yeah, you got Limerick did get good hurling needed it OTBAM brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish today wouldn't it be mad if that was like the that, that planted the, the seed and then it's like oh balls <laughs> I should have. I shouldn't have been given out advice. Turned out, but that's. The, I think that is the mark of the hurling man, right? That he becomes this passionate. I want everybody to do well. After I've won, after we've got our bits, then I want everybody else to 
So I don't know, maybe I was I was saying Dublin, come on, get him, come on, ring him up. Yeah, or is there like a kind of a, a more, is there a higher up role? National a, role. A national role, yeah. Like I think the GEA have, have experimented with, with that role in, in the past, just I trying have, to yeah. promote games, promote the game of hurling elsewhere. But um, it's, a, it's obviously, a, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty complicated question. And maybe high up in the Kilkenny GEA as well is one that's been floated in the past as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, with you last week by Eddie O'Connor. Eddie O'Connor was yeah. saying that. Well, he said it a few years previous, but he doubled down on it last week. Uh, Shane C says Shirley Ten Hag is saying publicly he wants him to stay but in reality he must be hoping he can ship him out to start fresh Bobby Dwyer says Ferguson getting involved in the meeting was unnecessary only last week John Giles was saying with Nathan about Busby's negative influence on the club and Franco Farrell after he left I mean there's definitely the bang of that going on here like why is he involved in transfer dealings 10 years after he left not a good idea uh, CS says United are rebuilding keeping Ronaldo is a waste of a year for all parties that being said he could single-handedly win them the Europa League a much easier route to the Champions League than fourth and Shane C says Colm is rocking some hipster football gear this morning it's a cork soccer top satellite taxis satellite taxis FC satellite taxis United satellite taxis Athletic oh, FC there you go uh, founded in 2013 right there you go that is uh, today's show OTB AM With Gillette Get into your flow With the new Gillette Labs Razor With exfoliating bar 